Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Casper, Mac Weldon, 4hims.com, and our contributors at Patreon. In southeastern Turkey in 1994, German archaeologist Klaus Schmidt decided to take a closer look at what was thought to be a medieval cemetery, initially discovered in the 1960s, but dismissed at the time as insignificant. Schmidt proceeded to unearth one of the most startling finds in human history when his dig exposed an 11,500-year-old temple that we now call Gobekli Tepe. It is the first temple ever built by humanity, with no equal in the world when it was constructed, and it has rewritten early human history. The temple contains a multitude of T-shaped pillars, some 18 feet tall and weighing over 16 tons. All of this 7,000 years before Stonehenge, and the Great Pyramid of Giza, 6,000 years before the invention of the wheel or writing. Who built it? And why did it wind up abandoned just 3,000 years later, sitting unused for another 9,000 after that? Gebekli Tepe lies in the heart of the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent. When it was built, the now arid plateau would have been surrounded by lush lands with huge, slow-moving rivers herds of gazelles, flocks of geese and ducks, stands of fruit and nut-bearing trees, and most importantly, fields of wheat. Wheat that all wheat today is descended from. Gebekli Tepe is not a settlement. There is no water at the site. No evidence of long-term habitation. What it is, is the world's oldest temple and its very existence suggests that hunter-gatherers defied current archaeological schools of thought and somehow got organized on a large scale to not only build, but use and maintain this temple. In 2008, Klaus Schmidt told Smithsonian Magazine this was the world's first cathedral on a hill. But what did they worship? Could the gods they believed in have been the inspiration for the legendary Anunnaki? Did they share stories of the apocalyptic mini-ice age 1,300 years long that had just ended? Why is there evidence of the display of human skulls? Could there have been some sort of sacrificial cult there? Regardless of the answers to these questions, there can be no doubt of the following. Until something more ancient is found, this is the first temple there ever was anywhere on the planet Earth, and whatever early humans did there, quite possibly constituted the underpinnings of all religion. Gebekli Tepe may have even been the seed of the Neolithic Revolution when mankind made the crucial transition from hunting and gathering to settling down, cultivating crops, and domesticating animals, both for work and food. Australian archaeologist V. Gordon Child called that the most important event in human history after the mastery of fire. In fact, Gebekli Tepe itself may have created that need to settle down, changing the course of human history forever. 
Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Discovering that hunter-gatherers had constructed Gobekli Tepe was like finding that someone had built a 747 in a basement with an X-Acto knife. Charles C. Mann, National Geographic Magazine, June 2011. Join us tonight for a show about the first temple in the world, Gobekli Tepe. And we're back. That we are, and thanks for joining us, folks. Uh, By the way, please, please remember to support our sponsors when you can. When you support them, they support us, and the show stays free, and we get to keep doing it. So it's like one of those critical things. Mm. If you ignore everything else in this little section we call the housekeeping, don't ignore that. And for those of you that already do support our sponsors, thank you so much. Yes. We love doing Astonishing Legends, and we're not much in the mood to quit. Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) We also want to thank everyone for all of their feedback on the EVP, or Electronic Voice Phenomena, episode. And we want to make a few clarifying points about the recordings we shared with you. Firstly, we want to apologize for the quality of them, but that was well and truly beyond our control. We had one comment rolling today, and this gentleman was not, uh, well, couldn't understand him. And so, like, there's so much chatter, what is going on here? But the thing about the DR60 personal recorder we told you about is that it does not have a line out or any kind of removable media. So there's no flash card, nothing. It, uh, it predates all that stuff. So the only way to get a recording off of it is to press play and then record the playback into some other nearby recording device. Yeah, so with the EVPs that we heard at Kent, they were made on someone else's DR60 recorder, Kathy Weber of the Haunted Housewives. She's obviously not going to send us her $1,500 recorder, so when we asked for recordings of the moments that we wanted to share, a couple things had to happen. The first being is she had to search through hundreds of recordings because she's doing ghost walks all the time. That night, she had several different groups. And then scroll through the ones she found to get to the moments that stood out to us from the session that we were at. Then she had to play that recording into her iPhone or whatever device she was using and send us that file, which she did, but she's very busy and this process sometimes could take her a few days. And then additionally, the playback quality from the DR60 is so crappy, it didn't really really matter. Uh, And then mm -hmm. to make it even more difficult, she had the two, like the DR60 and whatever she was recording with a little too close together. So the volume was like overmodulated, meaning a little distorted, these, you know, these individual files that she made for us. So it wasn't necessarily better than what we had on Forrest's Zoom digital recorder, which we actually used for the show, and that was about six feet away. Exactly. So we wound up going with my recording, but it was my first time at a ghost walk in that situation. And frankly, I didn't, as I said in the show or the episode about it, I didn't expect we'd be using that at all. So that was just going to be for my personal playback of yeah. you know, my notes. I didn't even know for, you were doing it. No, so. it's for, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For, for fun. I was going to listen back to it so I could relive the moment and uh, see if there's any creepy voices that I've noticed so far. Uh, so far, I haven't. But that's the deal. I was a little far away. I was kind of shuffling that with a uh, a flashlight and uh, and and my cell phone, running Spirit Storybox app, and all kinds of, you know, it wasn't really a professional rig. As yeah, we say. and a lot of people were asking, why is there so much chatter? Everybody's talking, and it's, right. what you have to remember is no one knew we were recording the entire experience. No, it wasn't you know, exactly. So. so no, this is a gathering. That's how it is. What you did get to hear is that's what it sounds like at a ghost hunt. Yeah, not a ghost walk. That's somebody who's a guide telling you about the spook 
spooky kind of things and there's people, uh, you know, listening to them. This is very interactive. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a test and then, you know, quiet moment where you wait for a reaction and then you discuss it. And that's what the chatter is. Yeah, so, that's what I mean, you've got like eight strangers standing around freaking out about what we're hearing on the playback. So <laughs> yeah. people are going to talk and speculate and we're going to play it back over and over. And so that's why it sounded that way. Everyone who was talking didn't even realize that we were recording it. There was no way that they could know that yeah. they were stepping on a recording of right. any kind. Well, it's interesting because Roger from the uh, the ghost hunt that we met, Roger and Jill, Roger and I were talking about the Yanni Laurel thing, yeah. whereas you probably heard about that. Just look that up. It's a phenomenon where depending on where the vibrational register that your brain's able to handle makes the difference in what you hear. So some people hear that and it's like, oh yeah, I can hear dark roast. And other people, it's like, it doesn't matter how clear it is. Yeah. It's not going to register. Yeah. And then you have to filter that through belief. Right. So anyway, that's kind of what was going on there. So we understand if you heard that and it was like, I didn't get any of that. Why'd you even air that? Right. Well, to us, it sounded like something. Right. And you had to be there. Right. So what we're saying is for next time, we've got our own DR60 now, and we've learned a ton about what not to do on this session, and we will be way more buttoned up. So uh, we aren't done with EVPs by a mile. Yeah, that said, we have received some other files from that night that Kathy did record straight out in a quiet environment, and we're going to be checking those out. In fact, John Bolin, who does all of our opening sponsor announcements and did the scary intros and outros on the Black Eyed Mm, Kids series mm -hmm. this past Halloween... He's a professional mixer with pretty much every tool you can imagine at his disposal, and he's interested in running everything we've gotten through an extremely sophisticated Pro Tools plugin and processing it and analyzing it in what is essentially a forensic way to see if the voices we are hearing are really there and maybe even determine if they're human at all. He should also be able to clean them up a little bit, hopefully. So we're going to be doing this with any future EVP sessions that we do, too, that have any kind of results on them. Yeah, see, this is the scene in the movie, folks, where the person takes the clip of audio to a specialist and they analyze it. Like in the Mothman prophecies, it's like, well, the voice isn't human. What? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what's going to happen with this. And uh, hopefully there'll be some very interesting uh, results. So stay tuned for that, folks. But it may take a few months to get all of that into a show or of some kind. So or working on it. You didn't think we were just going to walk away from all this, did you? Oh, no. So anyway, enough about that. We have new coffee mugs, by the way. They are so freaking cool. I've been feeling inclined to hoard them all for myself, but they must be shared with Mm. the world. So Mm. Forrest had said our last round of mugs were great looking, but too small. Yeah, I like a lot of coffee in one shot. It's like (laughs) at least uh, 11, 12 ounces, 14 to 16 preferred. Well, the last ones were 11 ounces. These are 15 ounces now. That's okay. I'll go with that. Great big handles. They're really cool. They look like something that you'd been taken on a camping trip for 10 years. Yeah, people, they're faux distressed, which I guess Scott's going to chip each one. Yes, He's going to chip the hand. paint on each one. Yeah, so they it. look kind of old-timey. Chip it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we've made them in two striking colors with Astonishing Al on them. And if you believe any of this at all on the other side, just like we have always had. And mm-hmm. They aren't in the store yet, but they should be in the next week or two tops. We've also restocked our hats in all colors. Mm-hmm. They should be up in there soon as well. And we're working on some new fan art stuff. So just bear with us. Keep an eye on the store. And uh, last thought before we hop into the Wayback Machine here. A massive, massive shout out to Nicholas Walker. Oh, yes. Who sent us one of the coolest gifts we've ever received. I mean, pretty much everything we get from you guys is amazing, but Nicholas went above and beyond. 
hand-making a painted skull version of Astonishing Al, our logo, <laughs> then mounting him to a metal pole bolted to a wooden base mm. with an Unsolved Mysteries-style writing on it. That's but, right. But the name Astonishing the logo, Legends. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. very cool. I, honestly, I thought my son was going to lose his mind when he saw yeah. this thing. <laughs> well, you, I, I still say you should put that in his bed uh, oh so he wakes gosh. up to that, because it is life-size. Yes, and, and it has, I, a, it has I didn't a headset. Realize, too. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I was just looking at the tweet uh, that Scott sent out, and I wasn't really He hadn't seen it in about person the, yet. No, not the, the scale of it and then I, yeah. I showed it like whoa that is uh, that is human size yeah we actually put pictures of it or i did i should say all over our social media but if you didn't see it we'll post some pictures with this episode which you can find on the page for uh this episode at our website well what's interesting is that uh, skulls figure prominently in and the display show. of skulls figure very prominently in tonight's show yes so anyway nicholas we cannot thank you enough I can't find you in any of our channels, which uh, are channels of social mm-hmm. media are all kind of hard to manage, but send us an email so we can thank uh, you properly. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, last note, before we get rolling here, we are dark next week. Now, I know we were just dark last week, but next week is Memorial Day. My You're fam- going to have stuff to do. Yeah, my family yeah. has plans. You guys will be busy anyway, but we're going to yeah. be back the week after that with one of our usual three-week runs. All right, so let's get into Gebekli Tepe. I got to tell you what, I am so excited about this. When you first told me about it, I wasn't (laughs) sure there was any there there. I was like, oh, you never are. No, that's not true. You know, you had to talk me into Henry Plummer. And then uh, that was so good that Mankey did it on Lore shortly thereafter. Well, so. he, did, he didn't mention it. Yeah, he did. It was one no, of it was a, a brief yeah. mention, I guess. R- well, it was part of a, a series of abandoned towns, kind of, or, you know, ghost towns. Yes, and, yes. And things like that. But it was surprising to hear. Oh, here's an interesting tidbit about that. Today is the 155th anniversary of him becoming sheriff. Today? The today, day we're recording the, the day we're recording, uh, sent to us, I think posted into the Facebook group today by listener Trish. So ah, that was a... So uh, this is, by the way, we're yeah. recording because we're so far ahead and so organized. <laughs> this will be we're recording this a Thursday, later. Yeah, yeah, May 24th. This show's hopefully going to go up by Saturday, uh, God willing, and, and Sarah complying, our editor. So, that, so that's cool. So today is the anniversary, 155th? That number sounds right, but yeah. uh, no, he's... Well, uh, just you know. like that, when I first started looking at this at Gebekli Tepe, I was like, I'm, I'm not sure what all we're going to find here, which is what everyone's saying. <laughs> but, yeah, right, right. <laughs> but it's really turned into kind of a fascinating thing. And I kind of like, you're the Mr. Spoiler. You always tell me how a movie's going to end that I haven't seen before I see it. But the thing I like to do is go in blind, and I went into this truly blind. I hadn't heard of it at all, except from you in passing conversation. So Mm. as we're getting into it, why don't we talk a little bit here about some of our sources before we get going? Right. So as always, our astonishing research core, the ARC, dug up a lot of great articles, journal reports, magazine articles, citations from uh, long-buried journals and ancient texts, as they <laughs> always do, which were fabulous. So we're, we're going to draw bits here and there from them. A few of them have disappeared in the Middle East, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> what, our art members? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, you know, that we've set them out into the field. <laughs> that we're legally responsible. I hope that doesn't happen. No. Yes, they uh, all paper tigers. We researched the darkest, deepest corners of the internet to bring this to you. And so aside from that, we're going to look at a couple of courses from the Great Courses Plus. Yeah, there's two of them. One of them we've actually advertised before on the show. And oh, that's right. Yes, we did. Yeah, yes, we yeah, did. Profile or, origins right. of great ancient civilizations, cradles of civilization. That one is taught by Professor Kenneth W. Harl, Ph.D. He has an interesting quote about his lecture series, which also applies to talking about Gobekli Tepe. 
we will be looking largely at archaeological evidence and analysis done by anthropologists because we are operating largely in a world without writing. Which... Yeah, that that's really interesting, and that's going to figure prominently because not only does it make it interesting, it makes it difficult. Yeah, and no also... one left any journals behind. <laughs> no, you... So interpretation <laughs> is, it's open, let's say, yeah. and uh, there is a um, kind of a tug of war between archaeology and anthropology, and they, they work well together, and some people want to separate them a little. So that's interesting in itself. The other course we're going to talk about actually covers directly Gebekli Tepe, and that is called Archaeology, an introduction to the world's greatest sites, taught by Professor Eric H. Klein, Ph.D., and this is his lecture number seven on Gobekli Tepe, Katulhuyuk, and Jericho. Katulhuyuk is actually also in Turkey, in, right. in the Anatolian region here, and of course, you know, uh, Jericho from the Bible, a lot yes. of people do. So uh, those are two interesting lectures that give a lot of great information and sum it up, and we'll uh, be drawing on that. Oh, and then tell us about this really fun book we're reading. Yes, we're reading a book by the author Andrew Collins. It's called Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, the Temple of the Watchers, and the Discovery of Eden. This book, I can tell you what, it is a lot of fun. It Mm -hmm. gets way out there, (laughs) Well, but that's where the debate gets heated, as we like to say, and uh, Graham Hancock has done the introduction. I know some people go, oh, come on, but the book is really amazing. I, I think a lot of times when we pick sources, just so you know, it's vetted by people in the ark. Tess right. is always taking a look. Sometimes you find some topics have better books than others. Other times you look at it and you say, well, this one is, a, there's a lot of speculation in this, but I like to look at the reviews on Amazon mm-hmm. from people who are educated in the field that the book applies to. And I read all the reviews for this one. And one of the ones that I really liked reviewing Andrew's books basically said that he does a PhD level of research and work in this right. book. And as you read it, that really comes through. You really start to understand what's going on there. And there's not a rabbit hole that he doesn't go down. If he passes one, he's going to bring it back to you. But the other thing that he does, and he's a master at it, yeah. and it's the same thing this reviewer said on Amazon, was is speculation. Because of what <laughs> sure. Forrest just said a few minutes ago, we're predating writing here. And as you heard us yeah, say in the cold right. open, this is before writing. So all you have to figure this out is just what you can find today right? without any words or any other kind of history. And so there's a lot of speculation about what's happening. Right. But the simple fact is this site, as we have already said in the beginning yeah. of the show, is the oldest site of its kind in the world. There's nothing even coming close to it. Yet. So, Yet. Yeah. Right. There may be something else <laughs> Maybe under a pile Atlantis. of dirt. Yeah. yeah. But here's the idea on that is that, and people are maybe quick to discount authors and researchers like Graham Hancock and Andrew Collins, but I believe there's actually room for it within the broader field of archaeology and anthropology in an argument that we'll probably get to in part two, or I'd like to start off part two with that because it's in the areas of processualism and post-processualism. So, those are You're ways. Making up words again. Uh, it sounds like it, doesn't it? But processualism. <laughs> it's processes. Oh. briefly here, not to get into it, but it's it's a way of one school of thought, probably from the mid fifties into the sixties, of thinking about archaeology objectively and trying to make it more scientific mm-hmm. and objective, and and let's throw out some things, and then a a counter movement on that, saying like a lot of this at some point, and this is kind of the point I think Scott's getting to with these ancient sites is that it ends at a certain point and then it's educated speculation. It's educated guessing. Right. But based with people in the field and people who do have PhDs, 
they have a lot of background knowledge and years of training in the field and study to back that up. So, you know, you kind of have to weigh it and there's people who are for it against it. And so there, there might be room for it with some people and maybe not. But what we're saying is that at some point, the leaping off point is also, yes, it gets speculative, it gets fantastical, but it also gets a lot of fun. Hey, remember last time you asked me if I ever wondered how things start in ancient history? Well, we just found out with Gebekli Tepe. And a great start for me was to get into the research by checking out The Great Courses Plus first. Well, you always make a great point in that with The Great Courses Plus, it's information and learning you can trust. Think about it. If you're going to get a degree like in archaeology or history and you were able to gain admittance to one of the best universities, you'd be lucky to take a course from one of the professors they offer because they feature some of the most notable and award-winning scholars in their fields. We always wonder about some of the information we come across on the internet, but with the Great Courses Plus, we don't have to because we know we're getting the facts that are accepted by academia. And we're also learning about all the latest trends in research that lead to new theories. Like, for example... In the latest course we're taking, The Celtic World, there was the standard story about how the Celts started in Central Europe and spread their influence to the Celtic fringe in the Western UK and even into Brittany. But new scholarship has shown the story may be much, much more complicated than that. Yeah, and we also love learning about the fun tidbits, too. Like that the Celtic influence from the vast Irish diaspora left a legacy in Western culture with music, dance, and art, which are still hugely popular. But words like phony and smithereens and carving a jack-o'-lantern are Irish in origin, although they traditionally carved turnips. <laughs> well, I did know about the jack-o'-lantern turnips, but I didn't know about your phony smithereens. We can't get enough of this kind of stuff, and now you can get all you want, too, by getting unlimited access to stream their entire library with our special offer. That's right. Learn from the best about anything that interests you, like history, science, mythology, or brush up on your hobbies like writing or photography, and you can watch or listen anywhere you go with the Great Courses Plus app. We want you to enjoy the same thrill of learning something new like we do, so we've arranged a special, limited-time offer for our listeners, an entire month of unlimited access to the Great Courses Plus for free. But... To get this free month, you need to go to our special URL right now, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Do it now. Sign up today to get started. So remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Stand by, Sarah. Just looking up a pronunciation. Which is the title of everything. Which Tepe. We should... You're right. Pe, not Te... P. Yeah. Gebekli Tepe. Tepe. Tepa, P-E-H. Tepa. Tepa, okay. Yeah, Gobekli Tepa. Okay. Okay, go. All right, so let's answer the burning question on everybody's mind, lips, ears. Which Hopefully. Is... <laughs> they haven't already pressed stop. <laughs> no, no, because they, they <laughs> want to know where's the least, ghost? Yeah. Where's the UFO? <laughs> well, there, where there's not going to be any well, out-of-place artifacts in this I'll one. bring that in. Uh, we don't know yet. Yeah. That might be happening. Well, well. Because there's so many fascinating aspects screw. about this. <laughs> So here's the $64,000 question, or I guess the 10,000-year question. What is Gobekli Tepe? Well, to quote Professor Klein on Gobekli Tepe, quote, To put it simply, it appears to be one of the oldest pre-pottery Neolithic sites with evidence for religious beliefs that has ever been found, unquote. Meaning, this archaeological site was built before humans invented pottery. 
So imagine that. Pretty old. Because so what do you way what, before Harry what Potter. Do you, <laughs> what do you hold things in? <laughs> what do you make your soup in? Yeah. But we know that they did not have, again, the ability to take clay to spin, I guess, or at least form into useful vessels. So that's well, they didn't know how to basically to scoop it out of the ground and utilize it they didn't and, know how to and make fire it. it. But that's the idea. So that's a defining term here, is that this is pre-pottery, because pottery is one of the major things that archaeologists can look at and date and group by culture and time period and all that. So it's very helpful. Yeah. Well, anyway, so Professor Klein continues, quote, the Neolithic period or New Stone Age from the Greek neos, meaning new, and lithos, meaning stone, started about 12,000 years ago. So you can figure that's about 10,000 BC in the ancient Near East. Okay. Okay. So that tells us a little bit about what Gebekli Tepe is, the oldest pre-pottery Neolithic site with evidence for religious beliefs that's ever been found. Exactly. But let's talk about where it is. All right. So basically, it's located in what archaeologists call the Fertile Crescent, near the northernmost edge of this Fertile Crescent, and it's associated by another name, the Triangle de Or, or the Golden Triangle, because the land of the region was able to nurture, because of its uh, fertileness and also mild temperatures, that's another thing, because, of course, there were areas that got very arid and hot, but it was able to nurture the transition from human beings hunting and gathering to the domestication of plants and animals, which is a core feature of Gebekli Tepe, and eventually gave rise to the earliest civilizations and first city-states on Earth. But to be clear, what the evidence presents so far, and we'll take a look at this, is that this is just at that cusp, pre-domestication of plants and animals. Right, right in the beginning of it, and possibly the impetus for it, which is well, what that's, we're going yeah, exactly. to drill down on So that, that's but. a fine point we have to make on this, is that they weren't already farming, but this may have sparked that. And then to other areas in Mesopotamia much later, which actually gave birth to the great cities of the earth, <laughs> the Sumerian cities, Ur, Uruk, in the, in the regions of Sumer. So... You're going to hear a lot of what sound like Star Trek character names. (laughs) And and I'm sure they are somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) But here's the idea, is that there's evidence at this site, maybe the first idea that people had on the Earth to do something crazy like, you know what, let's stop running around. We can actually grow these animals and keep them penned up. And uh, plants, we can plant stuff. We don't always have to go foraging for things. And so it's a dramatic change yeah, in lifestyle. By the way, for foraging them. for wheat meant walking around and pulling the wheat off the stem one by one. Yeah. That's <laughs> what you had to do just, you know, for people who want to talk about the good old days. Also, I just want to quickly expand on the two aforementioned pre-pottery Neolithic periods. And oh, I yes. Mean, don't mm-hmm. let your eyes glaze over. This is pretty interesting. So, and this is going to point us again to where Gebekli Tepe is. The two periods were described originally by the legendary British archaeologist of Neolithic culture, Dame Kathleen Kenyon. Yeah, she was the daughter of the director of the British Museum and a legendary archaeologist in her own right. Exactly. Well, I just said she was legendary. Oh, sorry. You did? Yeah, legendary British archaeologist. Oh, there you go. I I said that. It's right there in the writing. (laughs) But it's okay to say it twice because she's pretty awesome. The two periods are the pre-pottery Neolithic A, or PPNA. Yeah. And pre-pottery Neolithic B, or as you probably guessed by now, PPNB. Mm-hmm. Now, PPNA was between 11,500 BC and 10,000 BC. This is the period that Gebekli Tepe dates to. 
both of these periods trace back geographically to the Levant, Mm. which it's a slightly amorphous geographical area. But within that, you can find Mesopotamia. Now, you kids who are still in school, you can probably still remember that. Those older folks probably learned about it, but don't remember much about it. I don't know. Gebekli Tepe is in what we call Upper Mesopotamia, which the word Mesopotamia is Greek for the land between rivers. And Mm -hmm. it's what's called a historical region, meaning it no longer exists in that form today. The rivers in this case are the Tigris and the Euphrates. And uh, this information here comes from Wikipedia. By the way, I did want to mention when we were talking about sources. Oh, yes, we are going to mention that. Um, Because, uh, you know, people look down their nose at Wikipedia. But when it comes to this kind of stuff that is uh, rooted in science and research, it's pretty great in terms of everything. Every single sentence is cited. You know, that's (laughs) exactly. Well, that's what's funny is that if it's a paranormal subject or a cryptid or something, or a folkloric kind of thing that's kind of like scoffed at a little bit, I don't trust it as much. Yeah. But the scientific entries, the articles on that, I tend to trust a little more. And here's what you do, folks. You have to stop thinking about it as like a guy named Mr. Wikipedia, and he's writing this all off the top of his head without checking things very closely. These are generally peer-reviewed. At least the articles cited are the same ones we would look at and do. And so on this entry, some of these references are already kind of culled together, which makes it easier, but they reference and cite the same articles, journal papers, and books that we're looking at. Right. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's kind of a summarizing it for us, yes. in, a, in a sense. So coming back to the rivers and the region of Mesopotamia, according to Wikipedia, it would be described as an area that today covers parts of Iraq, Kuwait, portions of Saudi Arabia in the north, eastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and parts of the borders between Turkey and Syria, and also the border areas between Iran and Iraq. And it's safe to say this is the first place in the world that complex urban centers developed. It is, as we've said already this phrase a few times, and you've heard it before, the cradle of civilization. And Gebekli Tepe is the oldest known temple in human history. So until something older is found, it can actually be considered the first temple in human history. But again, the question is, what was it a temple for? Why was it there? And I want to remind everyone, according to the book of Genesis, Cain and Nimrod built the first city. Mm, mm-hmm. According to the Sumerians, Gilgamesh did. Yes, Ur. Right. Yeah. That's the mm-hmm. Star Trek city. Yeah, that's right. But, and, um, and there's Ur, which is uh, reportedly by some the city, the birthplace of Abraham yes. from the Bible. Yeah, and some people say that San Yurfa is the yes. birthplace of Abraham. We're going to talk about that in, Turkey. In, in just a minute. Either way, yeah. the bottom line is all this has happening right here. No matter who believes what, it's all right in this zone. Yeah, it's all happening in the uh, Fertile Crescent, which is crescent-shaped. But just to picture that again, Gobekli Tepe is at the top, at the northernmost edge of this Fertile Crescent. Yes. And again, because the conditions were so good that uh, the area probably drew in a lot of nomads, a lot of hunter-gatherers to congregate on the site. No, because it's like a paradise. Was, exactly. So we're going to get talking about that and describing that a little later. Yes. So, But from the dawn of recorded history, like from the first history that we mm. have, until the fall of Babylon in 539 BC, Mesopotamia was dominated by the Sumerians and the Akkadians. Hopefully I'm saying that A right. Uh, which included the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now, the oh, those Sum- two are right. I know yeah, the, the Sumerians are considered by many to have created the first civilization in the history of mankind. 200 years after the fall of Babylon, Mesopotamia was conquered by Alexander the Great in 332 BC. And when he died, it became part of the Greek Empire. So now, at the time Gobekli Tepe was built, 
and being used in the pre-pottery Neolithic period A, you would have found circular mud brick homes, although notably there were no dwellings of any kind at Gobekli. That they could find, yeah, so far. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's actually no water there, which we already mentioned. I mean, there's water around in distant water, but any water that was there, according to uh, Collins' book, had to be brought in. So more on that in a bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, So you would have found circular homes in the earliest communities. The beginnings of crop cultivation, just the very bare beginnings. And for the first time, burial customs in which bodies were buried below the floors of dwellings, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that's going to tie into several of the cult-like practices. And when we say cult, people I know nowadays have a, you know, of course, negative uh, view of that. They usually don't turn out well. But basically what we're talking about is it's kind of like uh, a path of thinking by a group of people where we're all going to do this as a form of worship, or we all believe this collectively. Uh, So we're going to do this practice, and uh, that seems to be a common one, where uh, I'll hit on this theme towards the end here, but it's these people live very close to their dead. I'm sure these people live very close to death on a daily basis by wild animals, other people who are hostile, accident, anything happened to you back then, you're, that's it. There's no one to see you. Yeah. Uh, you Life might have, expectancy is like seven years old. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, here's the deal. It's a common occurrence, and they had a much different view of it and way to deal with it and honor it than we can possibly imagine nowadays. So some of the things we'll see tonight may sound really foreign to you, but to them, it's common daily occurrence. Yes. And just to frame it a little bit, to bookend it a little, the period after which Gebekli Tepe was found, the PPNB, or pre-pottery Neolithic B, during that period, that was uh, from 7600 BC to about 6000 BC. And that was different because by now, animals were definitely being domesticated for the first time and consumed for food instead of being hunted. And then flints came along as well as the naviform core, which is uh, fancy words for carved stone, Mm -hmm. arrowheads, and tools, which you can find earlier in other regions of the world, but in this particular area, weapons, if you will, and and tools to make things. Now, and the houses became, they went from circular or elliptical to rectangular, Mm -hmm. and also pyrotechnology became very prominent. Oh, fireworks, right? Uh, Yeah, fireworks. No, just uh, fire. South of the border. Just just fire in general, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, fire and the ability to use fire for different things, not just... Just, you know, keeping warm or cooking a piece of meat. Exactly. Getting a little bit more sophisticated with it. Here's the other thing about why it's the last pre-pottery period. They started creating polished, like, plaster floors from limestone. And it's generally thought that that led them to the discovery of pottery. Uh Uh-huh, yes. So they started mixing the water and the limestone, and then they were like, wait— Oh, right. maybe we can make this, and then maybe we don't have to put our soup in our hands. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the terrazzo-like uh, Romanesque floors a little bit later, but it's interesting that they would even have that. So yeah. there's some mind-blowing things about this uh, site. So, well, the actual dig site itself was uncovered in 1995 and is located in modern-day southeastern Turkey, closest to the ancient city of Şanlıurfa which is about 7.7 miles or 12.4 kilometers southwest of Gobekli Tepe by car. So uh, Istanbul, if you ever traveled there, really interesting uh, area I hear. It's a little under 1,300 kilometers or about 804 miles to the west. And it's actually GT, as we'll call it. We should probably just keep calling it that. But we're going to say Gobekli Tepe. No, let's call it G. From here on out, we'll call it GT. <laughs> is, are you, is there, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're going to alternate, folks. Yeah. Uh, it's actually closer to Aleppo, Syria, which is about 170 miles or 275 kilometers away to the southwest. So that should kind of give you an idea of where it's located. And it's really not out in the sticks. There's a road you can get to it. 
Now, the geographic area in which it sits is called Southeastern Anatolia region of Turkey. The Anatolia region is also known as Asia Minor, being the westernmost protrusion of Asia. And as Wikipedia describes it, quote, traditionally Anatolia is thought of as the territory that comprises approximately the western two-thirds of the Asian part of Turkey, or often considered to be synonymous with Asian Turkey, which uh, comprises almost the entire country. And to me, that just sounds delicious. Okay. <laughs> it's, you had to uh, make a turkey joke. I knew we weren't going to get through this without a turkey <laughs> joke. Okay. At least we got that out of the way. And uh, yes, we've had complaints about uh, dad jokes. So I thought like, well, here's another one for you. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the name Gobekli Tepe translates from the Turkish as belly hill or pot belly hill. And the site dates back more than 11,000 years ago to about 9,600 BC. All right, well, so we should talk a little bit about the site itself, what it looks yeah. like, and this is part of why it's so significant. It is on a hill, also known as Atel in archaeological terms. That's an artificial mound created when people live in the same spot for hundreds or thousands of years, and all of their refuse meaning old building materials, mud bricks, broken down houses, artifacts, all that stuff just gets piled up into a hill. We talked about this a little bit with one of our very early episodes, mm-hmm. Greyfriars Kirk, or Greyfriars oh, Kirkyard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. So many dead buried there that it's essentially up on a huge hill, a hill of dead people. It's amazing, though, that uh, after a while, things will get piled up and piled up, uh, yeah. much like dirty laundry, and then you start peeling away the layers like, oh, that's where that is. Yeah. Kind of similar thing. Also, like, st- if you ever have that desk, you keep putting mail on, and then uh, you start peeling it away like, oh, there's that important bill. Yeah. That's the idea. Over the centuries, people just living there, farming it after its initial use, and just natural erosion and the way that uh, the earth moves wind and dirt and uh, water around, it gets piled up and things get buried. The earth takes all eventually. Yeah. What this forms, if you can kind of picture it, is that it's like a hill that's been shaved off. It's flattened with sloping sides that can reach almost 100 feet in height or 30 meters. But Gobekli Tepe has a slightly rounded top and a height of 49 feet to 50 feet or about 15 meters and is about 980 feet or 300 meters in diameter. So it's pretty big. It's a, it's a giant... It's like 1,000 feet across. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fifth of a mile. Yeah, it's kind of a huge yeah. uh, mound with, again, with a gently sloping top. So I guess people would say, like, look at that pot belly over there. Yeah. Like, like a dad laying on his back. Right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's, in archaeological terms, is called a tell. And Gobekli Tepe also has some key elements that make it one of the most interesting and important archaeological sites in the world. For one, you were talking about temple, it has the oldest known examples of monumental architecture in the ancient Near East. So that is Neolithic peoples carving and erecting huge stone monuments. Yeah, so just, you have to think on that for a second. This is the first time, this is the earliest (laughs) example that that's ever happened. And it's a leap because there's not a whole lot of like partially built versions of this somewhere <laughs> no. else. So it seemed like yeah. they were working towards this. No, this thing just kind of pops up out of nowhere it's, it's on like, the yeah. timeline. Exactly. Yeah. So as far as we can tell now, there may be more sites around the world. We don't know, of course. Uh, but as far as we know, this is it. This is the start where somebody gets an idea to do this and recruits a bunch of other people, getting them to think it's a good idea to put a tremendous amount of work into hewing these mammoth blocks of stone. 16 tons. Yeah, out of the hillside there, out of the quarry, and moving them and carving fun designs into them and making some kind of uh, 
a tribute space, a sacred place, a sanctuary out of these. So that's what we're dealing with here, is the first time that humans got the idea to do anything like that, as far as we know. Well, the main guy here, there is a main archaeologist who's been on the case. we mentioned him in the opening. Exactly, Klaus Schmidt, and he's a German archaeologist and a member of the German Archaeological Institute, and he was leading the excavation at the site for over a decade and was most familiar with the findings there until his untimely and unexpected passing from a heart attack while swimming in July of 2014. Yeah, yeah. um, this, and I got to say, it was odd researching this because he was such the vanguard. He was the guy on this. And you read all the articles, and they're all fairly recent, and it, it feels like he's still around. I mean, I feel bad. I only just met him a few days ago through our research, and then to find out that he's passed, you read the articles that look like they could have been published yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And it's like talking about him in the present tense. And it, he's, Right. Know. It's very current, and the thing is that he got this going, and uh, we're going to talk about how it got discovered, but really, he's the driving force behind the discoveries here. I mean, he's had certainly help. Yeah. With the, uh, the Istanbul. Of course. You know, yeah, the San Lurfa Museum, other German archaeologists, of course, and uh, other people helping him, but he's the main guy in this story. So he came up with some interesting ideas about what Gobekli Tepe was used for by these ancient peoples, So what did he find? What was his kind of realization that led to all this? Well, according to Professor Klein, and also cited in an article by the Smithsonian Magazine titled Gobekli Tepe, The World's First Temple, by Andrew Curry from November 2008, so far, what Schmidt and other archaeologists have uncovered is at least five stone circles of various sizes, one of them being 65 feet across. So that's kind of the first realization that there is a pattern here to these slabs of stone. Quick reminder, yeah. what, we're six, 7,000 years before Stonehenge. Just want to remind yes, everyone. exactly. And, and Schmidt was actually quoted as saying in one of, the, one of our research sources, I think it was a National Geographic article, quoted as saying, in 10 to 15 years, Gobekli Tepe will be more famous than Stonehenge. Oh, yeah. That's no, no, it may said. be. There, well, yeah. there's certainly more stuff there. And here's something I want to mention that I thought was interesting uh, coming from Graham Hancock's introduction to Andrew Collins' book, is that he is wondering, is there a connection between the abandonment of Gobekli Tepe and the building of Stonehenge, or the start of it, which was around 3000 BC? I know there's a time span there, but perhaps there's more communication and connection between these ancient peoples than previously thought. So oh, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Did I tell you about the time I went to Stonehenge? <laughs> Uh, my, no, my did, grandmother did you really? planned oh, you did. That's a Christmas right. trip to, yeah. but she planned it right at Christmas and failed to understand how <laughs> closed down things are <laughs> yeah. in the area. Right. So I saw it through a chain link fence. Oh, <laughs> did it feel Just, magical? Yeah, no, no, so, no oh, didn't. It was that, a chain link fence. It felt right. more like uh, the scene from Terminator 2 <laughs> at the playground. <laughs> they could have been styrofoam for all you know. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you tell us about uh, kind of the techniques that Schmidt was using and kind of what area we're talking about here? Well, it, one of the things he's using, it's going to be very familiar to people, especially if they remember, well, pretty much anything we've yeah, ever talked exactly. about. But like yeah. Oak Island, for example, right. a ground-penetrating radar, GPR. Yeah. They're using geomagnetic surveys. This is a good time to be doing this stuff because the technology has come a long way, That's especially true. since that site was initially discovered and uh, disregarded in the 60s right. as just probably a cemetery. Right. It's the right time to be doing this. So apparently Schmidt, before he passed away, has had mapped around 22 acres the entire summit using those remote sensing techniques. Mm -hmm. Even then, the main one-acre excavation area he was working on actually only covers less than 5% of the entire site. 
So Schmidt was known for saying archaeologists could dig there for another 50 years and only scratch the surface. Yeah, archaeology is, it's a decades, generational, long endeavor, because think about it. You Just have ask to, the Laginas. <laughs> you have to sift through every bit of dirt, every cubic inch, every cubic centimeter, because you might miss something. Yeah. Something significant could be the size of your pinky nail. So you don't want to miss anything, and it has to be categorized and carefully gone over. So this is a long-term endeavor, and Schmidt knew that. But uh, what Schmidt and others had found and were actively excavating were five megalithic stone circles. And there are at least 16 other stone circles still buried, which Schmidt found using things like, we said, GPR, which I'm surprised we don't have our own unit by now. There's also deep ground penetrating radar uh, I saw used on the Oak Island show. Yeah. Well, Wikipedia is saying that there are more than 200 pillars in about 20 circles that are currently known through geophysical surveys. So I was a little foggy on just actually how many pillars there are. But think about this. There's enough to make it a real endeavor by ancient peoples. There's a lot of them, and they're really heavy. So to describe the circles... Each circle or ring so far has roughly the same layout. Within these rings are two large standing stones or T-shaped pillars in the center with smaller standing stones around them. And these standing pillars can be up to 16 to 18 feet tall. Wikipedia says 20 feet tall, or this is about six meters. And each can weigh between seven and 10 tons. Now, a U.S. ton being 2,000 pounds or 907.18 kilograms. These things are huge and heavy. Yes. And they managed to fit these large pillars into sockets that were carved out of the bedrock. So these are like pegs, imagine that, as uh, we haven't managed to say in a long time, the square peg in the round hole. Yeah. <laughs> at, least they, at least they were able to carve this. But think about that. They had to dig down to the bedrock, carve that out. Yeah. Tilt these things up into these slots and kind of prop them up there. Yeah. You were saying, though, that the engineering wasn't great. Yeah, that's true. They weren't in the best shape. And we actually found this out from a National Geographic article written by Charles C. Mann, who we quoted mm-hmm. at the beginning. This appeared right. in the June 2011 issue of National Geographic. And there was a German civil engineer, architect and civil engineer named Edward Knoll, who worked with Schmidt. And uh, for all we know, is is still working on the site. Mm -hmm. I guess Mann asked him how well designed the mounting system was for the central pillars. And his answer was not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, come on, get my break. He said, said, quote, they hadn't yet mastered engineering. Right. This is even more fascinating to me because it's not perfect. No, they had the idea. Yeah, Yeah, we got the idea. Yeah. It's the spark, and that's the important part. The idea, it, you know, it's. I don't want to get into too much of a tangent here, but you know, yeah. famously, when it comes to say the invention of the light bulb or the invention of television, when it came to modern times, a lot of times the people that came up with it and initially, they got railroaded or right. bulldozed by some other person who had more money or more resources or was a little bit more Machiavellian. Yeah. Back here, what's happening is. This is these guys got this idea, and they're the ones with the idea. They may have been the first people to put pillars anywhere. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, uh, we don't know. Yeah, so it's yeah. that that's what's really fascinating about it. Any other temple that we look at anywhere, Greece, whatever, all way after this. So <laughs> well, that's a, that's, yeah, no, that's no. super fascinating. Now, right. there's something else I want to say about the pillars. They're T-shaped, mm-hmm. which is funny. My son watches Teen Titans Go, so all I can think about <laughs> is their home base, which is a giant T. Oh, but but they are T-shaped. But yeah. the thing is, they're actually anthropomorphic in a way. The T at the top is supposed to be a head, but it's not the way you think 
Right. The T is not facing you. It's sideways. Yeah. So when you look at these pictures of these pillars, and we'll have a... That's right. We should have some of them. It's going to be difficult because all these pictures belong... They're copyrighted. Yeah. yeah. Belong the good to ones. like yeah. Smithsonian and National <laughs> Geographic. So it might just be a link. But uh, when you look at them, the face is on the end of the T. Yes. Good for explaining that. Yes. yes. Yeah. And the, the vertical shaft of the T has these arms that are drawn on the side. Right. And then the hands wrap around the front corners. So it's like a person, but the head, because the T is sideways, is kind of long yeah. like the alien. Yeah. Yeah. That's a way so to put it. I, sure. think it was, yeah. I, I don't, who knows why they came up with that idea, but they right. still have carvings of animals and stuff on them. There's smaller T's yeah. that aren't anthropomorphic at all. Right. That just have pictures and animals on them. But the large ones have arms and fingers and look like a person or are trying to look like a stylized, an abstract version of a person. Exactly. So it's a style. Think about the K paintings you see. And it's like, wow, that horse has a giant belly on it and tiny uh, stick legs. It's like, well, that's style. Think about medieval painting, how, you know, it's flat, two-dimensional. People look funny. The castle looks small and about 10 feet away on the lawn from these giant people. It's like they were just getting an idea of perspective And as we'll see in some of these ancient paintings found at some of these sites, the animals represented seem massive. And you could say like, okay, well, that boar that they're hunting is about 30 feet tall and and 10 tons, or they just thought it was more important. So the size relationship means that it's a reverence kind of thing. Like this thing feeds us. It can also kill us. We have a lot of reverence for it. So we fear it. We also need it. It's the size relationship makes it important. Sure. But that's the thing about these pillars. Not all of them are T-shaped. So basically in the center, you have the T-shaped ones. Yes. And then they're encircled by smaller standing stones that also face inward. And some of the stones are blank, but most have elaborately carved pictures of animals on them on their broad sides. Things like uh, foxes, dogs or wolves, lizards, donkeys, snakes, scorpions, bulls, lions, gazelles, and vultures and a few other species, but also insects and arachnids, and especially vultures. Yeah, the vultures are very prominent. So there's a lot of ideas behind that. And again, we don't have writing, so everyone's having to guess about these things. But one of the things that Andrew Collins says in his book is these are not the friendly, fuzzy, cute, friendly, happy (laughs) animals. These are all animals that, for the most part, that can hurt you are dangerous. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. Yeah, so there's an interesting, you know, scorpions, snakes, you know, what is all that about? And then the vulture, is it possible? There's some theories that the vulture being a carrion bird and flying away with uh, pieces of dead meat was a way to get to the heavens. Right, Uh, right. So then maybe it was respected as a vehicle, the thing that helped you enter the afterlife. Because there's also talk about the mound being yeah. closer to earth. The mound, the taller getting, being closer to the heavens. Right, right. And so there's the idea that that, or whether you're talking about pyramids from other cultures or whatever, at the, at the top, you're as close to the heavens or to the sky, and maybe there's a connection there to an afterlife or that sort of thing. So right. all of that stuff could come into play here, and yeah. this has been speculated on by people who are much smarter and better educated than we are. <laughs> well, he's, yes, theorized, let's say, uh, hypothesized. But uh, Çatalhöyük nearby, also in Turkey, another important site. Sure, thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which actually sounds kind of Native American, which I, I like. But yeah. but well, you're putting that accent on it. I yeah, guess. the idea though is there is a painting that survived that shows, I believe, vultures crowding in around a prone body, and yeah. the thinking is that this also might be a way of preparing the dead, in that the vultures, the predators, would strip the flesh away from the bones. These people were purposely left out in a field 
the flesh gets stripped away and then the bones are able to be prepared either maybe in an ossuary or buried beneath the floor. Uh, it's a big deal. Right, because you don't particularly want to put Uncle Pete under the floor with all his flesh and Ooh, all that other stuff because no. after a while, the house is not going to smell so great. Right, so it's a, it's a ritualized thing. Right, so you put him out on the hill. Right. Let the birds do the bulk of the work. Right. So they have a function, and it's kind of, it is a spiritual journey into wherever you're going to go. Meanwhile, the vultures are like, Carl, this is the best place. <laughs> it is I so love it here. There's a fresh They just meal. lay them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're right there. Well, like all the other animals, they serve their purpose. Yes. That's another big theme of Gobekli Tepe, is that it's a relationship between man and animals, and also the relationship between the way hunter-gatherers saw animals and the way that people who practice animal husbandry, farmers, will see animals. Their relationship is different. The hunters have a respectful view of them in that they could be adversarial. You hunt a, a dangerous boar, it could kill you. So you respect it. It's on your level. It's a game. So there's a lot of respect there. Whereas the farmer, it's like a nurturing thing. You are raising them. You are caring for them. You're feeding them. They're going to nourish you at some point. But it's a different way of looking at that. So you're here, trying to find them when the space aliens hide them in the <laughs> horse trailer. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, that yes, no, the Skinwalker. Yes, that's a Skinwalker Ranch. Well, they're very expensive, you know, so yeah. thousands of dollars. Yeah. Here, uh, that will mean though how you live, and so the way that the people who built Gobekli Tepe uh, lived was still nomadic, hunting and gathering. And here was a reason to gather, but not for food, for a social and religious purpose. So that's the reason for possibly, it's a hypothesis, is that that's why we're seeing pictures of animals on these in kind of a relationship way that may be kind of scary, but that's how they're thinking of the beasts of the field and their relationship to them. But, you know, there's some, you know, nice ducks and geese and different, <laughs> it's not all terrible, horrible animals that could kill you. But there's a theory that came out in the summer of 2015 that some of these images might be pictographs, and that means the carvings could tell a story, but no one yet knows what that story is. There's really no way of deciphering this. And so think about it as a picture of Rebus, maybe, that to them, these images mean something in a particular pattern or succession. And it's not just pictures of, of animals. There's also kind of abstract art, design. Like you said before, there's people that are kind of stylized. There's uh, a totem pole. There is a totem pole. Uh, we're going to talk about the discoveries there. These discoveries here are fairly recent. Yeah, in 2015. So what this says to me is that these ideas are still being formed about this ancient site, and things like this are still being discovered and will continue to be in the years to come. But it's very fresh. Again, it's not a stale old uh, dusty site. I mean, physically it is. <laughs> but the idea behind no, it. No, yeah. it is. It's the oldest one in the it's world. The oldest but, one in the yeah, world. But beside for that, <laughs> it's, a, the it's ideas, recently excavated. Yeah, it's new thinking. It's really sparking some new thought. And uh, that's also why it's exciting. And it's also reminding me a little of the one by three by nine monolith from 2001. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a space Odyssey. one of the pillars looks like a monolith. It and does, that's yeah. one of the things to talk about. But it looks like a monolith because the top of it's broken off. That's true. The T part broken off. The T part are, broke, yeah. Yeah, but it's the idea. Not cross their T. <laughs> very good. Another dad joke. <laughs> what, I, what I love about it, though, the idea, though, what I like about it is that this slab is a basic tablet, a means of communicating an important idea. That's far beyond what you could probably I, I, write down. I didn't see this in anything that we read. But yeah. I wonder what compelled them to make a humanoid, a T-shape like that 
in, well, its, in th- its profile. Right. I think it's just... I mean, I know it's abstract, but... It's abstract art in a sense. Yeah. Maybe some of the first. And Maybe that, they thought not, it was going to hold the roof up better. There is some other discoveries there that are going to happen uh, that if we're going to talk about. Do they have a roof? Well, they don't know. They the, don't know, the circular right? circular yeah, enclosures, yeah, because, what, you know, guess what it would be? It would be, you know, Wood organic materials yeah, yeah. that have long since faded away. It also collapsed in on itself and purposely taken down. So yeah. we just don't know if they were covered. The dig site itself now, the main pit, is covered. It's got a corrugated metal roof over to protect it from the elements. Yeah. But that's what's interesting is that um, if you're talking about the representation, I see it as it's like a style. Certainly, they could have carved these stones. They had the skills to do that because some of these drawings, as you'll see in the photos, are fairly well done. They're not that crude. No. Uh, They're not stick figures. Like, even people today can't draw a decent human. I couldn't do what they've done. Right. Well, Because there's one, like, three-dimensional little chameleon thing or something that looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I know what you're talking about. Because he's kind of... He looks like a tattoo. Yeah, he's like crawling down the side. He's slithering. He's in a kind of an S-pattern thing. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. There's definitely art that predates this in terms of skill. By the way, you know, Forrest and I saw... uh, Werner Herzog made an amazing film called The Cave of Forgotten dreams if you haven't seen it you gotta check it out first of all he's the most entertaining documentary director of all time just with his accent and his observations (laughs) but he's also incredibly talented and this movie is about a cave in france they found that has i think the oldest stylized Mm -hmm. artwork in it and it was found just by some guy was hiking and smelled something weird coming out of a crack in a mountain or something and they got in there was thirty thousand years old yeah yeah. artwork is Stunning. Like, it is yeah. just beautiful. And well, again, it's based on personal talent. Yeah. There's people that uh, send us stuff that's pretty amazing that I can't duplicate myself. Yeah. And so if we were all living in a cave in those times, we'd have that person do the paintings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not one of us. My point is that it's a style. So certainly I believe that they could have carved, because they're using flint tools here to chip away and shape these things. So yeah, it's a lot more work, but they could have shaped these things in a three-dimensional style, but what we're seeing is that it's representational. So it's like a graphic. Think about the figures in your street signs. That's not exactly what a human looks like. He's kind of got rounded limbs, or he or she. but look like uh, Gumby. Yeah, but you get the idea. That's it. It's a representation. And you see that now with the digital stuff. It's called a flat style. It's just very graphically representational. So that's kind of what we're talking about here in their own prehistoric methods. Memorial Day is right around the corner. You got any plans? Honestly, dude, my main plan is to catch up on sleep. (laughs) Uh, Me too. And speaking of which, listeners to our podcast are invited to take advantage of Casper's competitive, limited-time Memorial Day sale offer. Oh, that's great. You've had your Casper mattress for over a year now, haven't you? How's it treating you? Oh, well, here's an interesting story. A close friend of mine is looking to buy a mattress, and of course, I suggested Casper gave her the offer code, and she said, oh, come on, is this really a really good mattress? And I said, honestly, this is the best mattress I've ever owned or slept on. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's the truth. Well, good sleep is so important, and Casper is the place to shop for Memorial Day mattress savings this year. They sell directly to you, eliminating added costs and saving you money. That's why they are the Internet's favorite mattress. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. And returns are hassle-free if you're not completely satisfied. Casper has three mattress lines to choose from. The original Casper, the innovative Wave, and the streamlined Essential. 
Now, the original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep service with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. That's the one you have for us. Yeah, I have the original, and I got to say, when I get into bed, I do press down on it every (laughs) night. Just because I I really do love the bounce and the sink on it. All right, so that's a proven model right there. Oh, there you go. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. And the Essential has a streamlined design at a price that's not going to keep you up at night. And the breathable design of each mattress helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. That's one of the favorite things about mine. I don't get overheated. For a limited time, visit casper.com slash savings and receive 10% off your order with any mattress purchase. This special offer expires May 29th, 2018. Terms and conditions apply. Again, this is for a limited time, so you'll need to act fast because this special offer expires May 29th, 2018. So visit casper.com slash savings and receive 10% off your order with any mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Is it Tepe? Tepe. 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 That's what it says. Well, I mean. All right. (laughs) T-Tepe. Tepe? I thought it was, everybody says Tepe. So a few minutes ago, I mentioned the Cave of Forgotten Dreams. I can't remember Mm. the name of that cave, but the guy was like, what's it called when you go out looking for truffles? Isn't there a name? Truffle Hunter? Truffle Hunter or something? Yeah, probably in French. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) some wind blew out of a crack and Uh. it peaked in or whatever. And there was like this insanely huge cave. How was Gebekli Tepe discovered? Well, it's one of those classic stories, like all these great archaeological finds. A lot of it has to do with farmers, because that's who's on the land that no one else is using. They're farming it. And like, I think at the Tomb of Osiris, a farmer's donkey stepped in a hole and that discovered a huge passageway going down into the ground. This is in Egypt. Yeah. And that one's really amazing. There was a whole special on that with uh, Zawi Hawass, who at the time, he's since retired, but... That's the guy with the hat, right? Well, they all have hats. I love it. Yeah, but Zawi Hawass, he was the one, whenever there was a, to talk about the... He was very outgoing and yeah, had a that's personality. why they made him... Uh, yes, of course, because You know, a, uh, a friend of mine yeah. knew him. Really? Who is Egyptian, but lives here in the States. Oh. And he got a personal tour after hours through the pyramids with him, just well, like his shabby. family and yeah. him before he retired. Wow, that's quite uh, something to say. Right. In this case, though, there's various accounts as to how this site was discovered in modern times. But the main story is that in 1983, a farmer, now this is all mostly farmland, remember, and it has been for ages. So this farmer found a carved stone in his field and he took it to the local museum, probably the Shandlerfa Museum, I guess, close by. So as we said more at the top of the show, this wasn't the first time the site and its stones were noticed. In the 1960s, the University of Chicago and Istanbul University archaeologists examined the site while doing a large survey of the area, and they saw the limestone slabs and were thinking they were headstones. And they were still mostly buried at that point. Right. So basically, the site survey was conducted in 1963 by American archaeologist Peter Benedict. Again, he was working in conjunction with Istanbul University, and they were doing a survey of the area, and he identified lithics. Now, lithics are referred to by archaeologists as generally, you know, as as stone tools, either partly or wholly made of stone. And so Peter Benedict collected some of these lithics from the surface of the site and assigned them as belonging to the aceramic Neolithic. But he mistook the stone slabs, the upper part of the T-shaped pillars, for grave markers. 
postulating that the prehistoric phase was overlain by a Byzantine cemetery. So basically like a medieval uh, middle-aged cemetery. Essentially, he thought it was a mound. It probably started well, out a long time ago. Right. I had all tons of bodies and just kept getting added onto. He's looking at the tops of the T's and thinking they're slabs. And by the way, to be fair, yeah, this predates ground penetrating radar and all the kind of technology you might use today to confirm that what you're looking at is what's actually happening there. So it's totally understandable. He's scraping away the dirt. There are stone slabs here. And he's thinking, well, it's old, but these are probably just gravestones. So essentially, it was... I wouldn't say dismissed. It was just thought of as like, well, we, we kind of know what this is. It's yeah. just a cemetery, and uh, we don't need to go disturbing these folks here. And so it was overlooked at that time in the mid-60s. So here might be a good spot to actually explain some archaeological terms before we go any further, because uh, we need reminding. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure some of these people out there don't know what they yeah, are. Yeah, this is, there's a lot of info in this episode. It's a little dense. I do want to remind people that... We're trying to set this up so that when we get into the next part of the show, and, and we're still not sure if it's going to be two or three, but mm. that's why we don't ever. People are always like, just tell me how many parts it is. And it's like, <laughs> we, we don't, don't know. know. Uh, yeah. What we're trying to do is give you the backdrop here about what this place is and how it was discovered and everything that you can know about it so that when we start really going into the speculative parts about how it might have been used and what it could have been, you have a good foundation. So this is... And, and so do we, really. Yeah, so do we, we. We need to refamiliarize ourselves with these terms as well. Yeah, so this is Gebekli Tepe 101 right here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so here goes. And sincere and profuse apologies for any mistakes to our archaeologist listeners. We have a few. Yes, yeah. we have some in the ark. Uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so pre-pottery Neolithic A denotes the first stage in early Levantine and Anatolian Neolithic culture. So that's around 11,500 to about 10,000 BP before present. That's what that means. And that's circa. So that those, those the way, are kind of rough. Notice yeah. how much that brand has disappeared since they spilled that oil in the Gulf. British Patrol it used to be everywhere. BP commercials, really? gas stations everywhere. Oh. I've been just thinking. I haven't seen any anywhere in uh, a long time. Maybe in England. Yeah. Okay. Sure it's there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Look, archaeological remains are located in the Levantine and Upper Mesopotamian region of the Fertile Crescent. So that's where PPNA is found. That's interesting. Right. And I mentioned that at the top just to reiterate. Right. PPNA, pre-Pottery Neolithic A, is the time period that Gebekli Tepe dates to. Yes, the, the oldest parts of it. Yes. Uh, okay, and this time period is characterized by tiny circular mud brick dwellings, which we're not seeing here, but where people live, that's where they're living in. The cultivation of crops, which is... Later, a, by the Yeah, way. which is later. Not initially. Uh, exactly. The hunting of wild game and the unique burial customs in which bodies were buried beneath the floors of dwellings. Yes. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of that later. So you might think that's creepy, but uh, that's what they were into then. And so, as we said before, there's a second part of this pre-pottery era, PP and B, pre-pottery Neolithic B. Yes. Now, Levantine, uh, meaning anything pertaining to the Levant, the region centered around modern-day Syria, Israel, Lebanon, the Palestinian territories, and Jordan, or any person from the Levant. So in its narrow sense, it's talking about the historical region of Syria. I just read today, it's now coming to be a political term. That's an evolving word, the Levant. Or yeah, the Levant. exactly. So basically, you'll, you'll hear that, and that's kind of geographically what it means. And in the larger historical sense, that is, it included all of the countries along the eastern Mediterranean shores. So anyway, back to the story of Gobekli Tepe's discovery, or I guess rediscovery, 
Now keep in mind, this whole area had for centuries and generations been used for farming. So farmers naturally had moved the dirt and they'd piled up rocks and probably disturbed the top layers of the site trying to prep it for agriculture. So it's just people are using it. It also seems that at some point, some attempts were made to break up the larger stones because farmers had mistaken them for just big rocks. Yeah. So they're getting misidentified and people are just naturally doing what they're going to do. History is filled with stories of modern day folks misidentifying ancient artifacts and using ancient priceless texts for such common things as starting fires or wiping their butts. Wait, who did that? It was some local people who found uh, like some ancient biblical texts and were using oh, them for yeah, toilet paper. I did. We did. I remember reading about yeah. that. Yeah. Paper's scarce. So that <laughs> happens throughout history. And it's a comical kind of ironic big picture thing of our priceless artifacts in our history often meets an inglorious end. In this case, though, they were able to save it. So what's interesting here, though, is that these things are just below the surface. In fact, some of the stones they found had plow marks yeah, on the top. Yeah, they'd been damaged by the plows, yeah. Right. Well, in 1993 to 1994, Klaus Schmidt was doing his own survey work of prehistoric sites in the area. Now, he was previously working at Navali Chori, a Turkish, uh, was an early Neolithic settlement on the middle Euphrates in Şanlıurfa province southeastern Anatolia, Turkey. The site is known for having some of the world's oldest known temples and monumental sculpture. Together with the earlier site of Gobekli Tepe, it has revolutionized scientific understanding of the Eurasian Neolithic period. The oldest domesticated einkorn wheat was found there. So again, there's a lot of important sites around here. Now remember that name, einkorn wheat, because it's going to come up. Yes, uh, it's actually pretty fascinating for wheat. Probably for grain had talk. Some of it for breakfast. You could have. I'm surprised why it's not a brand uh, yeah. you can find at uh, Whole Foods for uh, ten dollars a box. Anyway, so uh, yes, so Schmidt reads a brief mention of the stone slabs on this hill, and he goes to check it out for himself. And he had seen similar things at Navali Chori. So right away, he knew it was significant by its shape, and as he says. Only man could have created something like this, he says. It was clear right away, this was a gigantic Stone Age site. So instantly, the shape of it, the layout, speaks to him. He'd seen this before, nearby, and he knew something was there. Right, so in 1995, he went back with five colleagues, and they started digging, working in collaboration with the nearby San Urfa Museum, and they started to uncover the first T-shaped megaliths. Then once they kept digging, that's when they began to find the stone circles. However, what they didn't find, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, was any evidence of a settlement, meaning signs that people were actually living there. There were no cooking hearths, no houses or dwellings, no trash pits, no clay fertility figurines, which can be found at nearby sites that are around the same age. Mm -hmm. There was evidence, though, and this will come up as this series goes on, of great feasts that were had. Mm. There was feasting. Yeah, but there wild wasn't, game. Yes, yeah. wild game. It's still kind of hunter-gatherer type game. There's a lot right. of gazelles and that yes. sort of thing. But there was not evidence of people living there. So that's interesting. Right. The food was brought in. Food was brought in. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's fascinating about that is that it implies that there had to be cooperation among multiple hunter-gatherer nomadic groups of people. Exactly. You know, I'm going to stop short of saying tribes. We don't know how organized they were or right. weren't. Right. But the feat of everyone working together to build this place and then also to feed people working on it or doing whatever it is they did there, yeah. that's super significant. Right. It's a very early example of a large group organization 
Yes. And we don't know how the structures were because there doesn't seem to be any social structure that we can see. No king or rich people or Yes, there's no indications. There's no indications of yeah. that. There's just not enough evidence yet. But again, only 5% has been searched. Yeah, that's true. But they did find some stone tools like hammers and flint blades. Yes. And similar tools found at other nearby sites were previously carbon dated to around 9,000 BC. So Schmidt and his team estimated that Gobekli Tepe's monuments were about the same age. And some limited carbon dating done by Schmidt confirms this assessment. So some testing has been done. They're pretty confident in the age of this place. Now, Schmidt theorizes that these prehistoric stone cutters used flint tools to carve out these pillars from softer limestone outcroppings, shaped them there, then transported them several hundred yards to the summit of the hill, and then stood them upright into position. Those tools are called naviform core. Mm -hmm. Took me a while to find (laughs) this out, but naviform, I believe, basically implying that it's boat-shaped. It's like a pointed shape. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And the core is, they call it the nucleus of what's left behind. You break off a piece of flint. Right. And then you beat the crap out of it until it's shaped like a tiny boat. Right. And then you can use it to carve rocks or stab your friends. <laughs> yeah, it or, can be very sharp, um, sure. Or stab a gazelle and eat yeah. it. There was evidence of that in the area. Right, a so lot of it. He said so much of yeah. it, more than you might find, just in one little concentrated area, What more than you might find at a full site at other locations where they were excavating. Think of it this way. They're using shaped, hardened tools, these flints, to carve softer limestone yes. into the shapes that they want and actually quarry them. So... Still a lot of work because some of these flints then are, uh, you know, maybe they had wooden handles they're tied to. You got to keep making them, shaping them. They get busted up. So the picture we're trying to paint here is that it's a lot of work, a lot of hard work. Well, once these stone rings were finished, and this is me thinking about this, maybe they had served their purpose. The builders eventually covered them over with dirt and then built a new ring nearby or on top of the old one. Yeah. It's interesting because whatever they were doing with great effort at some point, it was like, you know what, we're done with this, or we're going to retire this, and ceremonially, or just out of necessity, or just like, let's just fill this in and start again, (laughs) they filled these in with dirt. But here's the really fascinating thing about that, and this is going to be one of the bigger mysteries of Gebekli Tepe. Right. It decreased in build quality and artisanship each time they did this. It got not as good. I know I'm not talking very well, (laughs) but I never said that I was a good talker, speaker. okay. But the very first layers, the lowest layers, are the best made ones. Right. With the finest artwork and the best carving and all the, even though those stones didn't necessarily stand up with, they theorized that some of them had to be held up with sticks or logs. You're right, possibly, sure. In some cases, but... As they buried those, and this was taking place over hundreds of years, and they moved on to the next one, the next ones were getting smaller and a little bit crappier. Well, (laughs) think about it. (laughs) And we don't know why. No one has any idea why. Well, no, that that happens. But I have some uh, theories already. Right. That happens nowadays, even with the people with the techniques. Look at the Japanese katana, the sword. They can come close. They can't actually duplicate the sharpness, the precision that they had several hundred years ago. Yeah. 
it's a lost art. And that's maybe what we're seeing here. There are some for, techniques. Uh, Tori Hanzo. Well, it's, it's all made up. <laughs> we did be, nice callback, though. We yeah, didn't mention yeah. him in a previous one, but yeah. uh, no, that's baloney. Yeah. Uh, the idea, though, is that some arts get lost. And, yeah. and these aren't, you know, these aren't the high arts, the fine arts, but very artistic for this time. That's what we have to realize. We have to appreciate. Think about this. They did this without wheels. Yeah. They did this. Think about that old gag before the inventing the wheel. And uh, we were talking about this earlier. You know, when I was a kid and you saw cartoons and it was like, you heard that phrase, inventing the wheel. It was a picture of a caveman in a fur, uh, kind of a singlet. And uh, he's got a stone axe and maybe he's chipped a wheel out of stone. Well, that's not caveman days. This is much later than that. And they still did not have the wheel. Yeah. So you think about the, the very essential elements, something round you can use to roll and, and you could drill a hole in it and put an axle through it and make a cart. They couldn't make one out of wood, as far as we know, and uh, there's no evidence of any wheels here on site. Now, there were round carved pieces that have been found, but most of them are uh, rectangular or, or square in shape. So again, did not have the wheel to aid them. And no animals or beasts of burden to use to do the work either, as far as we know. These people managed to quarry, shape, carve artistic pictures into these 10-ton slabs of limestone that were up to 18 feet tall, then move them hundreds of yards up a small hill, stand them upright, surround them with a bunch of other huge stones around them in a geometric pattern, and do this at least 21 times over the years in different locations. and. Uh, this is also without the use of metal, pottery, or writing. By the way, there was one, I believe, you know, not too far from the site that was partially quarried. It was like a giant T. Oh, yes. I think that one's 55 tons. Uh, 50 tons, yes. That's a big one. So maybe they were going to try and use that one for the first round, and they were like, we'll never get this. this <laughs> we're just going to leave it This here. one, Carl, come yeah. over here. There's no way we're going to be able to get yeah. this back there. Why don't you write down, uh, you know, how you think the math's going to go? Oh, yeah. we don't have writing or no, paper. Or yeah. math. Exactly. Let's see, you know what? Can we just make a smaller T? <laughs> that's, that's <a>, yeah, even <laughs> then, archaeologists figure that this would have probably taken 100, 200, or more people, I think up to maybe 300 people, in an estimation, a long time with great effort. And really, you think about it, no material gain. This no is, one's wait, this is where the this. UFOs come in, right? Uh, they was beam it? the T's to the side. Well, it's interesting you say that, <laughs> but no. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that because I Aliens. think it would, be, it would be fancier. Yeah. Now, uh, Punta Puku, one of those other oh. sites here, that maybe that's happening there. Okay. What the idea here, though, is that uh, everyone believes, even Graham Hancock is not a fan of the ancient aliens theory here. This is done by humans, and it's just an extraordinary feat. Yeah, and the, and the question is, where did they go? They went on and Why lived their lives. Why was it abandoned? Exactly. So uh, those are things that are on the anthropological side that we have to uh, think about. But there's no material gain here. You know what I'm saying? They don't build this and rent it out. There's no payment to be made. So this project... Unless for, it's a payment to the gods. Yes, exactly. So yeah. that's the idea. For whatever reason, this project must have been very, very important to these people. Yeah. And a group of people that were convinced that this was somehow some kind of tribute that would make their lives better, give them a fast pass to the good life and the afterlife. Something was worthwhile here in yeah. a large scale. But that's the setup that really is going to spark civilization. And I, I probably should have looked this up before we started this, but I got to thinking about it when we were, you know, kind of putting the finishing touches on the outline today. Yeah. I'm not sure, but uh, people were probably a lot smaller back then for the most part. Right. With eh, I'm going to, you know, that's a good question. Uh, they do have bones. A lot of them 
it's hard to say. Some are articulated. Yeah. You know, I'm going to guess that. Uh, let's go with the average, like, five to f- five feet. Yeah. <laughs> five, five and a half feet. Just saying, yeah. it makes that T even bigger. Right. You didn't have giants. Well, we don't know. Maybe they got the Nephilim to help well, I think them. the Nephilim were prior, but then they got wiped out by the comet. We'll talk about that later. Exactly. Well, here's here's the, the deal, though, is that if you, if, you believe, if you believe in that giant's line, this is way this before David and Goliath. Yeah. Because that would be, what, 1,000, 1,100 BC mm-hmm. around that time. So this is way before that when things were still magical, possibly. So that's what we're trying to find out here by the, the very few clues that were left us. But they're in fairly good condition for what it is because of the fact that they were backfilled. They were filled in with dirt, so that kind of preserved them. They weren't left open to the elements because wind and rain and sun erode everything because time devours all. Man, I've never been so excited as I was when I found out Mack Weldon was back to sponsor us again. <laughs> well, there's nothing like the prospect of new underwear to get you going, man. But, you know, <laughs> but I get it. Mack Weldon is the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants, and more that you'll ever wear. They really are a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Their website is so well-designed and easy to use. Nothing makes me crazier than trying to make an online purchase, and you can't figure out how to check out or even if your order went through. Well, Mac Weldon has streamlined the entire process. It only took me about two minutes to place my latest order. And even though they've been around a while now, they're still honoring their original pledge of wanting you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. And on top of that, they still have the werewolf-proof silver underwear <laughs> and shirts now that are naturally antimicrobial. I don't think that they're werewolf-proof. What, well, they eliminate odor. I know that for a fact. <laughs> All right, that's probably actually more practical than being werewolf-proof, really. <laughs> I've been wearing Mack Weldon socks and underwear for over a year now, and honestly, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Wait, you've been wearing them for a year? Not the same pair. Oh, okay. Good Sorry. Lord. I, <laughs> I have several pair of Mack Weldon socks and underwear, and I love them. I mean, even though I just bought some new stuff, the stuff I've had a while is holding up great and it continues to be exceptionally durable and comfortable and i'm hard on socks i'll tell you i'm Mm. one of those guys that treats them a little too much like shoes i'm wearing them to take the trash out to the street i'm getting mail off the porch and i gotta tell you my older mack weldon socks still look great in spite of that and not a single hole in them i'm a convert for life Mm. well me too it's great stuff well for 20 percent off your first order Visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code LEGENDS at checkout. Don't wait on this. You won't regret it. Get 20% off your first order by visiting MacWeldon.com and entering the promo code LEGENDS at checkout. So here's something interesting. When I was in college, I found out that my grandfather was not my biological grandfather. I found out that my grandmother had actually been married once before, and that man, whom I never knew or even knew existed, was actually my grandfather. (laughs) Whoa. Did you ever even meet the guy? No, and and here's the thing. I think I was a junior in college when this just casually came up in a family conversation. I was like, what? (laughs) And everyone, as in my entire huge extended Southern family, was like, oh, yeah, you, you didn't know that? I was like, these people forgot to tell me this. (laughs) Uh, That does happen with families. I've had, like, uh, revelations in my 20s. Where you're like, what? Like, oh, no, yeah, we didn't think it was important to tell you. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about it. I found a picture of this guy, and you know what? Oh, really? What? Bald. (laughs) 
I mean, really? super bald, like oh. fryer tuck thing all the way around. Oh, I was dear. like, why wouldn't this dude just shave the rest of that? <laughs> and of course, the next thought, the next thought is... Uh, it's coming for you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they say you get it from your mom, and that's true, but it's a mm. myth that that's the only place it comes from. Right, right. Uh, believe me, if I'd have done something about it back then while I was still relatively thick-haired, I probably could have stopped it, but they didn't have the options then that they do now. No, that's true. Well, uh, that's why we're pretty excited to tell you about 4 They're a one-stop shop for men, and it's not just for hair loss. That's right. This is a revolutionary thing, folks. You don't have to go to a doctor to get prescription strength medications for hair loss, skin care, or even sexual wellness. 4 connects you with real doctors and medical-grade prescription solutions for all of that. Yeah, this isn't snake oil, folks. They have well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescription solutions that are backed by science. Just visit 4 slash legends. Answer a few quick questions and a doctor will review them and prescribe you products that are shipped directly to your door. They have a beautiful, easy-to-navigate website, and everything you get from them is sent in elegant packaging. Don't be like my biological grandfather <laughs> that I never even knew existed. Oh, no. If you're facing some kind of challenge that you've been too embarrassed to see a doctor about in person, 4 slash legends is the ultimate solution. So order now. Our listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See their website for full details. This would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash legends. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash legends. You never know if you might have had a secret bald <laughs> grandpa. So visit 4 slash legends. Is it Tepe? Tepe. 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 I would say Tepe. That's Tepe. Tepe. But not Tepe. 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 Yeah, okay. All right. It'll be... We'll get around there. Okay. That's fine. All right. So let's talk about the date of Gebekli Tepe a little bit. Yeah, the dating methods and the analysis that goes with that. Yeah, now we'd already mentioned that it came from pre-pottery Neolithic A period, which was about the 10th millennium. BCE, which stands for oh, before current era. Before it's another era. way of saying BC or uh, or AD uh, Anno Domini. Can I just Domini. you can? It's I want to talk a little bit about these BC BPs and whatever. Go else. ahead. Is it just me, or are there like fifty new ways to say what year <laughs> something happened? There's the two major. Because I feel like when I was in school, the, yes. it was like AD and BC. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I know about that, and we may get letters from this. People saying like, no, 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 you should say worst episode ever. Worst episode ever. And also, you should say BCE. Yeah. I believe it is up to the individual scholar because, uh, again, I've seen a lot of these great courses plus with a lot of uh, popular award-winning professors and people in the field, certainly the people that are very lauded who we're commenting about and referencing tonight are. And from what I gather from them, because some of them mention it, is that it's depending on how you want to look at it and how you want to present it. I'm not going to get into a big social thing here online with the internet and all that. Too late. No, the point is is that if you don't want to say BC before Christ or after death AD, you can use before current era or current era CE. And or so, BP. British well, Petroleum. <laughs> the BP actually that's a, you need a starting before point. Before present. Exactly. So generally what I read on that and uh, thank goodness I did because you're grilling me here on it. <laughs> uh you got to pick a date, you know what I'm saying for a current era. So that's kind of 1950. Yeah, that's the right. I looked that up. Yeah, so mid-century thing. 1950, anything pre that is BP. 
before present. Right. Anything after that is present. There you go. I, I think uh, scientifically, that's probably the demarcation line of. Uh, of a no, lot there was of a that. reason for it. Yeah, there, there was, was a... an astronomical thing, or ah. there, there was some reason they picked okay. 1950. Well, it's I a nice round too. number. Yeah. Let's see, we're reading the same stuff. We don't even know it. Exactly. Of course, well, I can't that's, recall that's, it right now. <laughs> no, our heads are mush. Yeah. If you want to say politically correct, it's how it's just how you view it and how you want to say it. And I don't think either one is wrong. It's a personal choice. That's what I'm going to go with. So this, we the grew, year look, you know. the year 1950 was chosen because it was the standard astronomical epoch at oh, that that's time. Right. right. There you go. Epic or epoch if yeah. you're British or yes. Scottish. Let's move on, shall okay, we? So okay, so anyway. But no, here, here's, uh, if you are questioning that in our terminology throughout the episode, that's what we grew up with. It's what we're familiar with. That's what we choose to use. You may do whatever you want depending on your viewpoints and beliefs. There you go. So to get to the methods of dating and to talk about the 10th millennium BCE. Right. That's how it's referred to in this Wikipedia entry. In this one particular entry, with regard to the discovery of Gebekli Tepe Mm -hmm. or when it dates back to, one of the things that's interesting is you have a quote in here, which is particularly interesting. And this is from the Neolithic Revolution in the Near East, Mm -hmm. Transforming the Human Landscape. This was published in 2007 by Alan H. Simmons. Oh, that's, yes, the Simmons. Yes, uh, Mr. Simmons. University of Arizona Press. Now listen to this. This is interesting. A Pippa-Paleolithic hunter-gatherers, generally nomadic, made relatively advanced tools from small flint or obsidian blades, known as microliths, that were hafted in wooden implements. There are settlements with flimsy structures, probably not permanently occupied except at some rich sites, but used and returned to seasonally. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first terms that I want to point out there is Epipopaleolithic, which is... Nice uh, job. Thank you. It's yeah. very fun to say. <laughs> it is. Uh, and here's what's interesting about that. It can be confused with Mesolithic. Yes. And there are sometimes those two terms are used as synonyms, but apparently Epipopaleolithic is used for cultures that were not much affected by the ending of the Ice Age, and the term Mesolithic is reserved for Western Europe, where the extinction of the megafauna had a great influence on the Paleolithic populations uh-huh. at the end of the Ice Age. It's now a meme, too, that's going to show up in our... A Pippa Paleolithic <laughs> is a term that applies to hunter-gatherer cultures that existed after the end of the last Ice Age, but before the Neolithic period. Uh-huh. So these are the people that came along before whoever built Gebekli Tepe. Right, but that's a good point because we're talking about transitional peoples here between different epics, eras. They think that climate had a bunch to do with this. What's happening is that you're seeing people adapt not only to their environment here, but this is also a social and religious and spiritual adaptation by peoples, which also transitions them to what you are doing right here, right now, believe it or not, with your own lives. Yeah. And to get back to Simmons and what he was saying there about these flimsy structures, what's interesting is that the people who built Gebekli Tepe, it was the opposite of flimsy. Yeah, it was permanent. Right. And yeah. they kept returning to it. It was important to them. And this very idea may have given rise to civilization, which exactly. didn't exist prior to this moment at all. Right. So this is a groundbreaking moment and the discovery and Literally. analogy. <laughs> Like, you go back. That is true. You you break the This is where the term comes from. Yeah. Well, (laughs) nice segue. Because off guard there. Well, guess what we're going to talk about next? Yeah. Uh, The actual description of these excavation layers. Yes. 
Take us to a general description All of right. the tell. So Gebekli Tepe is on a barren plateau, these days anyway. That wasn't barren when it was That's built. That's true, right. It's been affected by thousands of years of erosion and stone quarrying and repeated farming, frankly. True, yep. Um, and to the north, the plateau is connected to a mountain range by a narrow promontory. In all other directions, the ridge of the plateau transforms into slopes and steep cliffs. Here's a note on that. The idea is to ancient peoples, and we talked about this actually in other uh, Everything's Connected, other episodes, to peoples of the land, anything that uh, stands out in their landscape that seems kind of cool, yeah. seems different, unusual, something that catches your eye. Look, uh, that, that big rock in Australia. Exactly. <laughs> that's a, No, that's exactly it. Uh, uh, Uluru. Yes, Uluru. Good job. uh, What is Uluru, Alex? So that is uh, the idea, though, is that it's sacred. Let's revere this. Let's go visit it. Let's uh, come here to reflect on the nature of our existence. And that's what's happening here. This is a a small, well, potbelly hill. It's something that you can walk to that's above the rest of the land, and it has some significant meaning, at least, to the peoples there, the indigenous peoples or whoever's migrated in, the hunters and gatherers, it means something. They can see this uh, visually, that this is special to them. So that's kind of the general description. It's a plateau. It's a flat area, a rounded, softly rounded kind of a hilltop of a not very big hill. But the huge T-shaped pillars and other monumental rocks seem to have been carved out, chipped out from the quarries near the plateau. So close by, there's rock outcroppings that they can utilize. Now, the outlines of these pillars were chipped away, and then the whole pieces were levered out, right? Yeah. They think. They, I mean, they don't really know how they do No, that, I had to get them out somehow. But yeah, yeah no, no, they were uh, basically... They're, they're or ch- Edlene Skalner was there. I mean, she <laughs> levitated them. <laughs> that, that's, you know what, that's... I or know that's silly. a tuning fork and a four-cylinder motor. There's a lot of parallels here. It's a, a small... A man of small stature was able to do this by himself yeah. with some simple tools. Now, he had metal. These people did not. What that's they true. had was uh, hardened flint. So what they did was... They tapped out, chipped out the pattern in the rock of what the shape that, you know, the, they wanted, and then they basically carved it out, and they kind of pried out the shapes from the promontory, from the rock outcroppings. And then it's thought that uh, these things were carved, shaped, smoothed in one area, and then transported to the top of the hill. Now, there are three massive T-shaped pillars. I think you mentioned this earlier. Yeah, pillars whose profiles were cut into the bedrock, but were never levered out of the bedrock. Two of them are on the southern side of the plateau, and the one that's on the northern side is 23 feet long and at the head 10 feet wide and may weigh up to 50 tons. Massive. Yeah. It would be awesome just to see people working on this. Yeah. Back then. In one place of the plateau, a lion-like figure was found on the western edge of the hill, along with fragments of flint and limestone. So it's thought that this is where the sculpting of the figures was done. And then, uh, you know, they worked on them then because they could see the chipping, the sloughing off part. Then they transported these stones, however they did it, into place and set them up there rather than like getting them rough to the spot and working on them there. Yes. Again, some thinking. They figured out the better way to do it. Here's the interesting part. When you talk about the layers mm-hmm. of Gebekli Tepe. Right. You know, it's supposed to be standard archaeological practice, but it's mm-hmm. they're numbered opposite from the way I would have thought. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you're, you're starting... Yeah, you're uh, drilling down from the top, it makes sense. To me, layer one should be the one that's on the bottom 
Oh, yeah. Layer three. You know what? Here, I got I maybe the I'm, one on the bottom. I may have an answer for you. Okay. Logically. Yeah. You just made me think about this. You ever know how they numbered or, or thought about how they numbered freeway lanes? Yes. You're in the number one lane, accident, there's a ladder in the number one lane. Yes. Always here in LA. So you don't start from the outside because you need a reference point. The reference point being the center of the freeway where both sides are going. That's where you start, and that's where you start counting. Rather than counting for, here, we could have up to six lanes. Yeah. So you don't start counting at lane number one is six. Well, then how many more are you going to go to the center? Let's start at the center and count outwards. So here, I think you don't know how many stratified layers there are going to be that have been laid down throughout the millennia. So you start at the top, like, well, we know here, this is the first layer. Then we're going to keep digging until something changes, until the dirt changes, until things, uh, the dated things, the pieces of pottery, the lithics that we find, the, the shards start to change. They're like, okay, now this looks different. So maybe here there was a change. People filled it in. Yes, to answer your question, that's my thinking, is that the reference start point is the surface of the ground. Okay. And then you start going below right. rather than rather that's, than counting up. Yeah. Right. But that's not <laughs> what they do. Yeah. Right. But well, also, Gebekli Tepe has three layers. Yes. Layer three is the oldest one. Yeah. That's where the circular enclosures, or Tamin, start to appear. Taminos being a piece of land that is marked off for official use by, like, royalty or for sacred purposes. Yes, it's been reserved. There's a it's red been rope reserved. around it. Red yeah. rope. Mm-hmm. So uh, radiocarbon dating suggests... The age of these earliest structures is to be around, as we said, Mm -hmm. uh, 9600 to 8800 BC. Right. The circular enclosures have rough stone walls that have up to eight of these T-shaped limestone pillars evenly spaced in them. Five of these circular enclosures have been unearthed so far, and ground-penetrating radar has shown there are at least 16 more. Or still. 15, yeah. It's, yeah. These are, as we write these, more discoveries are being made. So the, yes. you figure the numbers are In the teens. loose. Yeah. yeah. They're still underground. A lot, most of them are still underground. But though. that's almost 200 pillars in all. Yeah. And the pillars were cut out of the bedrock with flint-pointed tools, then transported from the quarry pits over 300 feet to the hilltop. Yeah, 300 uh, feet. The, again, without right, wheels. Right, right. So that's a long ways to carry a, a cooler yeah. to the beach, yeah. let alone to, you know, a, a giant uh, stone slab. Especially a cooler with a lot of ice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you got to get some help. Well, in the center of these circles are the two largest T-shaped pillars, which stand facing each other. You could say that they're people looking at each other, and there are benches for sitting within the circles. In addition to the animal carvings on these pillars, we mentioned earlier, the pillars also had, uh, as we said, abstract images, designs, uh, pictograms, which may have had some spiritual symbolic meaning. We're not sure. They didn't leave anything to tell us that. But also vultures, lots of vultures. And and we talked about that earlier, but that was very important to them. So think about this too. And also so many areas of the earth in nine to 10,000 to 12,000 years has changed dramatically. And back then the area was most likely very lush with flora and fauna and heavily forested. So it's likely all of these different types of animals could have been around then uh, that you you would see all the time. And so to reference that Smithsonian article, quote, Indeed, Gobekli Tepe sits at the northern edge of the Fertile Crescent, an arc of mild climate and arable land from the Persian Gulf to present-day Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt, and would have attracted hunter-gatherers from Africa and the Levant. This is a choice piece of land that people are coming to, and that right there is sacred because it's sustaining them. This is a great spot here, we found. As Schmidt said, 
this area was like a paradise. Not like it is today, uh, which <laughs> thousands of years of development leaving the land dry and dusty. So when you see pictures of it, just imagine that it lo looked a lot more attractive back then, a lot more teeming with uh, delicious life. And there aren't many humanoid figures depicted at the site itself, but some of the pillars have arms carved into them, like we said. So it's kind of a graphic representation. The arms are kind of like in a chevron, if you can imagine that. They're angled. And then here's something else that's interesting. Some of the, the ones that do have humanoid figurines on them or depictions have loincloths. So yes, loincloth days, old, ancient, before the toga, before all those other articles of clothing you think about as being ancient. We're back to loincloth days. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing about the pillars and what they may represent. They may have represented either the people that have come there to worship, you know, as a, as a figurine like, uh, come over here and uh, start praying, or revered deceased ancestors or maybe even spiritual deities, supernatural beings that they prayed to or revered, but no one is sure. Well, no one in mainstream academia, maybe, but we'll get to that later. Some of the floors of these oldest circular enclosures are made of terrazzo, as we said earlier, or burnt lime. I guess uh, it's a way of processing crushed composite stone material, marble sometimes. So stone chips or crumbled, uh, I guess, rock is blended with a cement-like binder, and that is used for the floor. So we have a lot of uh, products like that uh, nowadays, but again, these people ground that stuff up. Manually. Manually made it into a floor. So that's something you don't usually see with hunter-gatherers. Yeah. They're not usually making houses that fancy. Other floors in these circles are bedrock, and the pedestals for these pillars were carved out of them to serve as bases, tab A into slot B kind of a thing. And then for some unknown reason, the inhabitants at some point during the Stone Age filled these in with dirt, or gradually they were left to fill in with dirt. So that's interesting. They kind of just uh, said, we're done with this. You mean the whole thing? They buried it. They buried it. Yeah, yeah they yeah. backfilled it. Now, it's interesting because it, it did, like I said, the result was that, uh, yeah, you don't get to use it anymore. Maybe their beliefs had changed. Maybe over the generations that it was up, it's like, you know what, yeah, we uh, we prayed to this thing and it didn't really come through. But if through. the beliefs changed, then why didn't the construction change? I mean, it went down in quality, but there was still the T-shaped pillars. Now, if you look at layer number two, exactly, which actually dates from around 8800 BC to 8000 BC, and this is pre-pottery Neolithic period B, right. which means at this point, we're now, instead of the round and elliptical homes, by the way, there were no homes found at this area, right. but in the region, you would find rectangular rooms being made with polished lime, like Roman terrazzo, like, we, yeah. like you were just talking about. Exactly, right. And these are often associated with the beginning of the Neolithic period. But the main feature of these rooms is also the T-shaped pillar. Yeah, they and kept it, that. Yeah. And which in this case are almost five feet tall. And the rooms, weirdly, were doorless and windowless. So they're thinking they also serve some kind of religious purpose. Right, because they kept the T-pillar in there as a, as a function. Yeah. Design is changing, like you said, and they weren't as maybe carved as elaborately as layer three. Well, and five feet is, is only a third as tall as they were originally. Well, they, they, 18 they, feet tall. They, they probably got smart, like, you know what, let's work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Like, this smaller or, one is just as good. Or as, did they lose the knowledge? Well, yeah, the knowledge of having to move them yeah, alone. Exactly. Yeah, Maybe so, they lost uh, it because so it's, a it's another crowd and right. it wasn't passed on because there was no writing. 
It's interesting, but those ideas... Hey, Carl, come here. Let me tell you how we move this over here. You have to remember this. <laughs> right. Are you going to remember Did this? Did you write this down? Oh, right. we don't have writing. Here, right. Here's how it goes. <laughs> you know, and then he's like, Carl's... I can't, it's lost. I can't remember anything. Carl actually probably died when he was 12. That's as old as anybody lived back then. That's an exaggeration. I'm making yeah, please, a joke. Right, please yeah. don't say, because we're going to get letters. Yeah. yeah. What are you talking about 12? But the other thing they found in Layer 2 in 2010 was something like a totem pole, which is a lot like the ones you find here in North America attributed to uh, Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So uh, this one's apparently a little over six feet tall. It has three figures on it, some kind of bear-like animal at the top, and then a human figure underneath. Pieces of a similar pole were found a while ago in Navali Chori, and an older layer of Gobekli Tepe has a sculpture of this animal on a human head design, too. So that's another, I think, a design element that they liked back then they favored is the animal sitting on your head. Here's my question that Mm -hmm. we don't have the answer to, probably, but how did that get from there, Mm. from the oldest monument in human history, to totem poles in North America? Good question, man. That's maybe a part two thing, because some, I think like Graham Hancock, are postulating that there may be more interaction and communication with ancient peoples than previously thought. That's one of the fascinating things I personally love. We've looked at this before. It's like Gilgamesh and the, and the flood uh, myth, their Sumerian flood myth. Yeah. That flood myth is found throughout the world. And why? Is it just because we all fear water and... And you predates know, the Bible flood? by thousands of years. Right. Everyone's got one. Uh, Why is that so universally global? Those are interesting, very mysterious questions, which uh, I love looking at. So uh, now then we look down at layer one, which should be called layer three because it's on the top. (laughs) And you're thinking, uh, sure. It's near the top of the Potbelly Hill. Right. And uh, it's the shallowest layer. Yeah. But it also has been in place the longest. Yeah. Because sometime after 8,000 B.C., The whole site was deliberately filled in with dirt and debris, a lot of it being flint gravel with some stone tools, stone vessels, and animal bones, and even some human bones. Mm -hmm. They're just throwing everything into the pit. Yes. And then on top of that, thousands of years of loose sediment from people continually farming the land and natural erosion. Well, there you go. So that's kind of the description of what the dig is like and the uh, stratification there that's happened over the thousands of years. Here's my archaeological question. How... Do you excavate a layer that's under another layer without being destructive? Well, I mean, you work your way down. That's uh, what they're doing. Yeah, but if they're on top of each other, how do you get to the one underneath the one on the top without taking apart the one that's... Like, how do you go underneath layer one without removing layer one? Well, you have to remove layer... (laughs) The loose parts of so layer wait, you one. you just haul it off? I mean, you haul off the columns and the T? I thought, like... Well, no, it's... uh, Okay, so think about it this way. Layer one is just rubbish, crap. It's sediment, erosion... Okay, wait, uh, all right, that was, layer one was a bad example. Layer two, which <laughs> right. has the five-foot T columns, you just right. remove them from the site? No, I think you, if you look at the seems... pictures, no, no, I know I know what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's kind of hard to imagine. I know it's hard to explain over an audio medium like we're trying to do here. But the idea is that uh, they're in different places, so you, you'll have a rectangular room that's on the edge just off to the other circular pit that's underneath that, which is from another era. So... I get what you're saying. If you built directly on top of that and say you got a mud brick or even a limestone rectangular box that was built as a sanctuary with this big T in it, how do you get below that? Well, I think at some point you dig down and it's like, look, look, we got another layer. This is another era. It gets different down here. So we're going to remove that or shore that up so basically they can keep going. And, and that's, 
you, you shore it up or you move it, depending on what it is. So, but, but well, here's, folks, here's an interesting... this has just been a lesson in archaeology from two non-archaeologists yeah. with zero experience in I've, archaeology. Hey, I've read several articles by now. Come on. <laughs> and, and here's, but here's something interesting. They're not done. And, and uh, you know, look, I'll just say it now. I was saving this to as, as a big, uh, you know, finale kind of a statement. But, but Schmidt believed that uh, we're not done here. There may be something beneath layer three. There might be something under those floors. We don't know yet. Keep this in mind. This is not the total answer on this. This is just a few answers to a really amazing site, and we won't know for a very long time. Okay, I think the next thing we should do is talk a little bit about the theories about Gebekli Tepe, and these are not our theories. We're going to save those for the end of the series like we always do. These are the theories of people who are smarter than us. (laughs) Well, the the main guy, uh, Klaus Schmidt, who spent the most amount of time there, was leading the uh, God rest his soul. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely formed some interesting ideas from his discoveries. Well, you know, there's a couple interesting quotes from this article in the Smithsonian Magazine that we're uh, referring to. Yeah, a lot of these are going to come from that because what I liked about that article was that they had direct uh, quotes from him while he was alive about what he thought. This article is actually called Gobekli Tepe, the World's First Temple? Yeah, yeah. This is by Andrew Curry. This appeared in the Smithsonian Magazine in November of 2008. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a quote from that. Schmidt has found no evidence that people permanently resided on the summit of Gebekli Tepe itself. He believes that this was a place of worship on an unprecedented scale, humanity's first cathedral on a hill. Yeah, quote-unquote. Uh, it's really humankind's first megachurch. Joel Osteen, eat your heart out. <laughs> it's, uh, so here's the deal, though, is that this is the first evidence of anything like that, even on a smaller scale. Yeah. The first evidence we found of anything that's uh, relating to group worship, let's say. You might find some figurines here and there, but not a huge coordinated effort like this, or even a small coordinated effort. So it's, it's a one-of-a-kind that we've discovered so far quote-unquote, the cathedral on a hill. So now all these things, from his first discovery and inspiration and seeing this thing for what he knew it should be, all these ideas have formed Schmidt's opinion and conclusions about this. Now, here's something that's interesting about the animal bones that were found there. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes, from that same article, Joris Peters, who is a Belgian archaeozoologist. Oh, very good. That mm-hmm. has a lot of vowels in it. Uh, <laughs> from the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, you mm-hmm. know, uh, he specializes in the analysis of animal remains. He's examined more than 100,000 bone fragments from Gebekli Tepe. Well, he, yeah, since 1998, and that alone is a monumental feat. Yeah, that yeah. alone, and he found a lot of cut marks and splintered edges, which indicates that a lot of that stuff was butchered and cooked. And yeah. so he's categorizing it all and organizing it. And what he's found out, and this is interesting, he apparently there's tens of thousands of gazelle bones, mm-hmm. more than, and that's more than 60% of what was there. And then there's a lot of other wild game, such as boar, sheep, and red deer. He's also found the bones of a dozen different bird species, including our old friendly vulture. <laughs> right. Cranes, ducks, geese, everything. Mm-hmm. So he said the, the abundant remnants of wild game indicate that the people who lived here had not yet domesticated animals or farmed. The first year alone, they went through 15,000 pieces of animal bone, and all of it was wild. Yes. So that's pretty clear to them. These are hunter-gatherers. That's their site. That's their site. But did this site predicate a need or create a necessity or a desire to go from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to farming and agriculture? 
and here it says, uh, Peters and Schmidt say, Gobekli Tepe's builders were on the verge of a major change in how they lived, thanks to an environment that held the raw materials for farming. Quote, they had wild sheep, wild grains that could be domesticated, and the people with the potential to do it. End quote. That's Schmidt. Yeah, again, to reiterate this, these people, unlike uh, you see the great cities of Mesopotamia, where that's a major city-state forming here. Everyone's got a different job. They've already kind of figured out animal and uh, agriculture husbandry. They're working that through. These are people like the idea to erect a monument like this. The idea, though, is that since they're gathered to do this, that they're now getting this idea, the first spark of this idea of like, hey, we're all here together. And yeah, it's a really kind of tough for us to all go out and hunt everything every day to bring it in because it's going to take a long time for all of us here, this two, 300 people, you know, in, in the good seasons when we can work and we have other chores. So let's figure out what we can do to keep this going and make it easier on ourselves and sustain this project. So here's another interesting uh, passage from the article, quote, in fact, research at other sites in the region has shown that within a thousand years of Gobekli Tepe's construction, settlers had corralled sheep, cattle, and pigs. And at a prehistoric village just 20 miles away, geneticists found evidence of the world's oldest domesticated strains of wheat. Radiocarbon dating indicates agriculture developed there around 10,500 years ago, or just five centuries after Gobekli Tepe's construction. So, I mean, <laughs> a mere 500 years, it's got, you know, it's like when you buy a car and it's like, it's so expensive anyway. Like you're just right. It's like 500, just, yeah, throw in the undercoating and the, uh, the bed lighter for another yeah. 500. Right. I'm already spending 28 grand. So, I mean, that seems like a long time, the 500 years, but that's the age range, the course of years out of thousands that it's taking to germinate, no pun intended, this idea to start doing this and figure out ways to do this and pass that knowledge along to successive generations. Well, and here's what's interesting about that wheat. That wheat is the precursor to all wheat in the world today. It That's literally right. is the focal point, the starting point for everything we eat that you can make with wheat. Yeah. So here's an interesting little section from a, a website called Cereals Database or CerealsDB.uk. <laughs> but yeah. I thought this was interesting. Cultivated wheats naturally fall into three main groups on the basis of their genome complement. Diploids, which have two copies of the genome, and so in this sense are like humans, tetraploids, and hexaploids. Their assumed center of origin is the Fertile Crescent, mm -hmm. a region extending from southwestern Iran through the Tigris and Euphrates basins in northern Iraq and southeastern Turkey, extending to central Israel and Jordan. Einkorn wheat, a one-grained wheat, Triticum monococcum, is believed to be the most ancient cultivated species of wheat and may be the species from which all cultivated wheat is descended. Studies suggest that einkorn wheat was cultivated in southeastern Turkey from 10 to 40,000 years ago. Einkorn wheat is of particular interest because the gluten proteins it produces appear to be less allergenic compared with those produced by bread and durum wheat thus making it a possible alternative for sufferers of celiac disease. Well, there you go. They were gluten-free. Uh, yeah, but, so, so, but the, this is, again, just to frame this, we are talking about the first temple in the world, the possibility that the first place where hunter-gatherers became uh, stopped hunting and gathering and right. decided to learn agriculture and animal husbandry and then grow wheat and food. Yeah. And the bread that we have and everything that comes from it 
all coming from this little thing there on this go. hill. Exactly. Volcanic. Right, six yeah. miles out of San Lurfa or whatever. So it's, yeah, just, yeah. it's amazing. Exactly. The first grades, yeah. the ancient grades in your bowl this morning. Now, here's a good summation of what the conclusion is. The summary, the big theory by Schmidt et al. Quote from the article. To Schmidt and others, these new findings suggest a novel theory of civilization. Scholars have long believed that only after people learned to farm and live in settled communities did they have the time, organization, and resources to construct temples and support complicated social structures. But Schmidt argues it was the other way around. The extensive, coordinated effort to build the monoliths literally laid the groundwork for the development of complex societies. The immensity of the undertaking at Gobekli Tepe reinforces that view. Schmidt says the monuments could not have been built by ragged bands of hunter-gatherers. To carve, erect, and bury rings of seven-ton stone pillars would have required hundreds of workers, all needing to be fed and housed, hence the eventual emergence of settled communities in the area around 10,000 years ago. Now, so this is the yeah. first uh, factory with probably factory housing nearby. <laughs> it's it's a very, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, look. In North Carolina, we have mills, yeah. you know. The, oh, that's right. The other factory housing. All the little mill houses close by. Yeah. Well, the same and, thing know. here. I always wonder, you ever wonder, like, you, you take a road trip out in the middle of nowhere. It's like, who put these phone poles in? Yeah. A hundred miles out in the desert. What is going on here? Well, the workers have to, they have to live and drive in from a nearby motel, but the, yeah. you have to live nearby. You can't drive to work 200 miles every day. <laughs> right. So the same thing's going here. We well, we got to live here. And it's like, it's Og is, again, we always refer to Og. He's a current uh, player a lot, but he's got to go out and kill five wild sheep and two wild boars just to feed like 30 guys. It's getting to be too much. So let's figure out how to make this easier. That's what they're saying here. Oh, here's a, a noted archaeologist. From Stanford, uh, Ian Hodder. Yeah, we're going to talk about him actually in part two. I got a little bit lined up with that because he's got some very interesting modern ideas about archaeology and fundraising and different stuff. Uh, but his quote is, this shows sociocultural changes come first. Agriculture comes later, says Stanford University archaeologist Ian Hodder, who excavated Kathalhuyuk, a prehistoric settlement 300 miles from Gobekli Tepe. Quote, you can make a good case this area is the real origin of complex Neolithic societies. So we have some interesting theories as we're closing this out by the people that have been there that have really kind of flipped the whole idea of the start of civilization on its own. But we just don't know because it's so long ago. Think about this. We are 6,000 years before the invention of writing. Yeah. Schmidt says. And also think about this. There's actually been more time between Gebekli Tepe and the Sumerian clay tablets, which were etched in 3300 BC, then from the existence of Sumer to today. From so, ancient Sumerian times to right today, when you're listening to this, is less time that has passed than Gobekli Tepe to, Sumer. to Sumeria. Yeah. That's a, an amazing amount of time that has yeah, passed. Yeah, it's pretty it's crazy. Uh, certainly in terms of the human standards. Yeah, so there's really no way to pick out symbolism in any kind of prehistoric context, it's a hard thing to do with so little information. But as we venture into part two here, that's not going to stop some people from getting some uh, interesting ideas together. Yeah, and, when, uh, and, you know, and one of the other things that Hodder says is, you know, he's fascinated by the idea that the carvings, like we said earlier, the spiders, snakes, scorpions, or whatever, it's not prey. Right. And he can't really figure out 
why they were putting these things in that temple. Well, it's another mystery. As he says, it's a scary, fantastic world of nasty-looking beasts. And you have to wonder, were later cultures more concerned with farming and fertility, Ian suggests, than these hunters were in trying to master their fears by building this complex, which is a long way from where they lived. So what are they saying with these animal symbols? Are these things to be feared that this temple is here to kind of acknowledge that and face these fears? You know, scorpions and and wild boars and all these kind of things that, uh, again, are not food, uh, so much food animals. But there's a lot of different kinds of animals there. So we're going to wrap up part one of this series here. I was going to make a couple of... uh, Late-breaking observations, just part one related, uh, not final conclusions by any stretch. But I think the lessons here, what's fascinating is what, in finding this place and kind of excavating it ourselves from a knowledge standpoint, it's been a super interesting couple of weeks, which is why we're recording two days before this needs to post. (laughs) But, uh, you know, will you stop suggesting these historical topics? Oh, come on. It's like, here's the thing we've learned. It doesn't matter what we look at. Some stories just take you down. They literally take you down into the ground. Resurrection Mary was like that. We talked about that. It's like, let's do a simple, easy easy peasy ghost story. By the way, for all you folks that tuned out of that, because you're either not into (laughs) ghost stories or you were like, a fourth part, I'm telling you, part four is interesting. Well, it goes... You gotta give it a shot. It goes global. Yeah. If you, uh, as you like to say, the 10,000-foot view... I got What's, it from you. I know, and I got it from uh, some stupid business term. So as I like to say the thing term. you like to say. <laughs> it's actually from a stupid uh, bunch of meetings yeah. where people were throwing around, uh, I think, outside the box. Hey, we don't have to do that anymore. So <laughs> what, we're, what we're talking about here is like when you talk about these stories and you take the right angle and and a lot of times it's serendipitous you can kind of stretch back and see what's going on here that a lot of these stories are really kind of global because the themes and uh what's suggested and the things that this one certainly is yeah well i mean it's the uh the start of everyone and uh like i said think about um (laughs) you trying to explain your life to one of these people and all the devices like, oh, so you do have a rectangle. It's a really tiny rectangle. It lights up and we stare into it for like seven or eight hours a day. Usually <laughs> at a green light. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I, I like to drive really slow and just uh, while we're flipping through pictures of uh, cakes. Well, on it's, our you phone. know, it's interesting you should say that. There's a couple of things I would say. I mean, if you could time travel, bring one of these people that worshiped at Gebekli Tepe, I think the first place you would take them is a church because that's something you, that yeah. they're going to get after all this time. Yeah. That's a connection that's still right. going to be there. And then with regard to what you said about, you know, looking at an iPhone or a smartphone or something, that's interesting because the observation that I had about this in a way is this isn't just about religion. This is about technology. This is the birth absolutely. of technology. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, this goes from the hunter-gatherer walkthrough, I'm going to pick this piece of wheat and eat it right now. Oh, there's a gazelle, I'm going to eat that. Yeah. Like the, the moment-to-moment existence. Yeah. And it takes it and you start, it starts to organize. And you start when you start to organize how you're going to live and how you're going to exist and how you're going to deal with your food and how you're going to worship, right. you need technology. Yeah. You need the idea of technology. And for folks who aren't following me, it, and it took me reading a long time ago about the Mayans to understand that technology wasn't something necessarily that you plug in. Yeah. Technology is more about a sophisticated approach to, you know, installing systems or coming up with systems that help you understand how to get things done in right. a more efficient way. So if Gobekli Tepe leads to cities, yeah. in that way, cities are kind of like the first computers. They are a system that you become a part of Act, and you take advantage yes. of, and then it helps you. Right. And here's the important thing that's kind of flopped, again, to reiterate, is that uh, society does not generate 
spiritual worship and belief, they're thinking it's the other way around. Schmidt and company and other archaeologists who are in that line think that, uh, no, it's the wanting to believe in something greater than yourself, that there is something out there that makes us all come together, and look what's happening around us. Look what we did. Look what Ogg and, <laughs> and, and Gronk and all these other guys we and Carl, don't forget Carl. <laughs> Carl Although, unfortunately, yeah. Carl was crushed by a giant <laughs> Well, that, I'm sure that happened. to the ripe old age of 18. That's another good point, because in a world that's so dangerous and deadly, and your life is short, here's something we can all come together and build. And through coordinated effort and a couple of good ideas, look at the things we made. Well, let's keep coming back here and enjoying this kind of communal society. And it's not vice versa. So it's like we had this idea first that uh, we should get together. And uh, you know what? Life is rough, but it's also kind of beautiful. Let's pray to the things that make it that way. We all have the same idea. Let's build this thing. And let's expand on that. And let's keep coming back. Because we enjoy this. Life is easier when we share knowledge and we hand it down and we team up and we come together as a group. Because that makes life better. And we'll just see how long this lasts. That's going to wrap up part one of our series on Gebekli Tepe. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with part two. Special thanks again to Nicholas Walker for Astonishing Al. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Also applies to talking about Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. In the... Sorry. This is the period that Gobekli Tepe... This is the period... You're going to be sick of this. Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, I'm sick of saying it. This is the period... That Gobekla Gobekli Tepe Gobekli Tepe Gobekli Tepe Gobekli Tepe Gobekli Tepe. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Ark and its lead researcher Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 